What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. If there's one reason we're supposed to be here is to say something so people want to hear it. So you got to grab it. And you don't apologize. You don't worry about why they're listening or how long they're going to be listening for. You just tell them what you want to say. Thank you, Bradley Cooper, for that birthday pep talk. 700 episodes. 13 and a half years, 700 episodes of film spotting. Though, to be fair... I've only been around for about, I think it's like 320, something like that. Yeah. It makes me much younger than you, Adam. Of course. Cooper there in a clip from A Star Is Born, which he also co-wrote and directed. The star of the title? Already a pretty big one, Lady Gaga. Our review of Cooper's film and the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips joins us for the film spotting top five movie duets. That and more. Let's duet. Ahead on film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting, and happy birthday to us. Appropriate that on this 700th episode of Film Spotting, we're reviewing Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born. I've told the story before, though maybe not to you, Josh. The conception of Film Spotting went like this. Back in 2005, early 2005, I had a copy of Wired magazine. Adam Curry, the former MTV VJ, who was one of the godfathers of podcasting, was there on the cover, and it said, Adam Curry wants to make you an iPod radio star. I read that. I thought, we could do this. I called my buddy Sam, Sam Van Hallgren, who became the co-host, now is the producer of the show. And I said, Sam, this is how the call started. I said, Sam, do you want to be a radio star? And his response? Was yeah, he, man. Was he immediately in? He was immediately of in. Of course he was. <laughs> and here we are 13 and a half years later. And of course, not only are we a podcast, but we have been on WBEZ and a few other stations around the country for at least the last 10 years or so. So things managed to work out. I guess that makes me in this scenario, Josh, with you, the Bradley Cooper, the industry vet. I'm not so much into the whiskey and beer. It's more Pims. Yes, it the is. The liqueur is my thing this day, but I'm the Pims addict who discovered you <laughs> oh boy. and groomed you for podcast starting. And if you don't put down the Pims, we're going to have a very melodramatic falling out. We are. Hey, Josh. Hey, Josh. Hey, Josh. What? Nothing. Just wanted to get another look at you. I was trying to keep you from doing that, <laughs> if you didn't notice. I was going to force it. Later in the show, we'll make ourselves a trio for the Film Spotting Top 5 movie duets. The Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips, very excited to be joining us for that, mainly because he gets to make us look really silly with our pedestrian new age picks compared to his classic stuff. He's going to bring the good stuff you for the Top 5. You got some new age in there? Well... <laughs> Relative to his choices, maybe. We will see how that top five shakes out. You had the great idea to include Michael. I mean, we love to have him on regularly. He is one of our go-to contributors here, and you knew he'd be a good fit for this particular top five. He was going to be in my head anyway as we were talking about our picks, so I figured why not bring him into the studio. Podcast listeners will also get our preview of the Chicago International Film Festival, which kicks off next week at theaters all over town. Our radio listeners... If you like the show, maybe subscribe to the Film Spotting podcast, and you can get that wherever you listen to podcasts or listen at filmspotting.net. The podcast version is almost always at least 30 minutes longer, sometimes even more than that. First up, 
is a star reborn in Bradley Cooper's take on the Hollywood classic. Adam and I consider Lady Gaga the movie version in our review of A Star is Born. Maybe it's time to let the old ways down. Maybe it's time to let the old ways down. It takes a lot to change, man. Hell, it takes a lot to try. You know, man, in the old days, I always knew, like, you were going to do something, that you'd be all right. It's the first time I'm worried about you. Can I ask you a personal question? Okay. Tell me something, girl. Do you write songs or anything? I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Almost every single person has told me they like the way I sounded, but that they didn't like the way I look. I think you're beautiful. Bradley Cooper was not shy when it came to choosing material for his directing debut, Adam. A Star is Born has already been made three times, in 1976, 1954, and 1937, and those iterations have earned a total of 17 Oscar nominations. Over the years, the settings and details have shifted slightly, but all previous incarnations follow a narrative similar to what Cooper and his co-writers, Eric Roth and Will Fetters, have devised here. In this A Star is Born, we follow the whirlwind rise of an unknown singer, played by Lady Gaga, who is discovered by a burnt-out, alcoholic, incredibly famous roots rocker, played by Cooper himself. Now, Adam, you haven't been shy about your reservations with Bradley Cooper, the actor. Uh I remember you scoffing at American Hustle, the movie for sure, but I think also Cooper's performance. You've repeatedly given the backhanded compliment that his rocket raccoon from Guardians of the Galaxy is his best performance. And I mean it. I've winced each time, waiting for you to come around on the sparkly-eyed volatility that I think makes him an exciting screen presence. So imagine my delight when I came out of our screening for A Star is Born about two weeks ago Mm -hmm. to find you smitten. I believe the quote was, if I were him... I'd never shave that beard or cut that hair. Yeah, but that really has nothing to do with his acting abilities. This is what I've been dying to ask you since then. (laughs) Is it just Bradley Cooper as Jackson Maine, prematurely grizzled rock star, Mm. whom you've fallen for? Or have you come around on Cooper the actor? Or could it be that you've swooned for him as the director of this big, bold, Mm. give it all the Oscars now, star is born? He is grizzled and he is a tall drink of water. With that beard. Based on A Star is Born, Josh, I think it's probably accurate to say I appreciate Bradley Cooper, the actor, more than I did previously. Okay. And I'm taking a wait-and-see approach on Bradley Cooper, the director, though there's certainly promise there. I'm sure we will get to all of that. A little bit of background, even though you did such a nice job of summarizing it, of my view of him as an actor. Is it okay to say that I can recognize someone's talent even if I don't particularly enjoy their work? Oh, absolutely. I've always appreciated particular scenes or moments of Cooper's, but rarely an entire performance. It is true. I think maybe my most Larson-esque opinion is that I think his voice work as Rocket Raccoon in those Guardians movies is better than anything, as you said, in American Hustle or Silver Linings Playbook. And I don't even love those Guardians movies that much. I do love the attitude and the humor he brings to that raccoon. But he's just one of those actors for me. I think I've said this before on the show where I often feel like I'm watching 
the wheels turning. There's a calculation to his choices that comes from an intellectual place, but doesn't feel maybe to me as instinctual or as natural as I suppose I would like. And maybe that's, that's why. That's a quality observation, though, there. That's, yeah. that's not like he's he's not just your style of actor. That's saying that that's true. you can see him working on screen. Yes. Which I'd completely and disagree I with. I think he's a very instinctual actor. Okay, so yeah, I don't see him that way at all. But that is maybe why I like Jackson Maine. I like his performance here in this film so much. He's someone who is perpetually in a state of numbness, comfortable mm. or otherwise. And so those wheels just maybe aren't quite spinning as fast as they otherwise would be. The way he carries that numbness Physically, that shaggy nonchalance he has, and even vocally, the way he lowers his register, and he kind of has a flatness to his cadence. I think it's really effective and authentic. And that, for me, Josh, is the key word here as we're considering A Star is Born. Authentic. Is he believable as this past his prime, drunk, country, rock star? And in addition to that numbness, I don't think I've ever used this word in 700 episodes of the show. I definitely don't use it in my daily life, but... There is an insouciance to his Jackson Maine. I almost feel like you need that kind of mystical word to describe it because he has that kind of indifference, that general lack of concern for everything that's going on around him. And yet he's someone who still pulls you naturally into his orbit. I think that's a real trick that he pulls off here. Is his singing and his playing believable as this past his prime drunk country rock star? You know that's so important to me. And yes, he does. Chris Christopherson, I think about in the 1976 version, I just did finish that really terrible film over the weekend. And he's pretty much miserable all the time, even when he's on stage. And Jackson Maine, he certainly seems to take more pleasure in it once he has connected with Allie, the Lady Gaga character. But even before that, he does seem to enjoy being on stage and performing. He still has that talent. He doesn't look down on his abilities, doesn't pity himself in those instances when he's performing the way maybe we do see in some other versions of A Star is Born. Another key question, of course, is Ali's sudden stardom believable? Does Gaga deliver the goods as both an actress and performer? And is their love believable? Do we believe their connection and their chemistry on stage and off? And I do really like the feeling each other out banter we get between them that all leads up to those moments when she finally does take the stage and the comfort they seem to offer each other even after those moments where she's become a big star that seems to be genuine so the answer for me to all of those questions is yes and that's why i can recommend the movie you breaking out the big words for episode 700 see listeners who stuck around it Mm -hmm. it was it was worth it um yeah i can recommend the movie i think this is going to be another case of us both liking a movie and disagreeing on particular elements yeah. about it. I think Cooper is good here, but I would probably rank it behind many of his performances because it doesn't – to me, there's more calculation here. I, I don't sense that sort of um, spontaneity or volatility, I said, that you get hmm. from a lot of his other performances where you're not quite sure where the guy is going to go or what's going to come out. Um, this is is studied, and I think the voice in particular, um, which the film – there's I'm so happy there's a reason for it. As Sam Elliott appears in the film as his long-suffering tour manager, right. and it turns out that's the voice that he has been mimicking. Yeah, Adopted it. There's a key line. It makes sense within it the does. narrative. So it's not just like even before I knew Sam Elliott was in the movie, I was mm-hmm. like, why is he doing Sam Elliott? And thankfully, there's a reason. It still, I think, is a little put on in terms of 
making us believe in this character, even though it has that narrative reasoning behind it. And maybe in comparison, like I said, to his other performances. But I do think he's good here. I think authentic, yes, check. I would agree with you. Uh, Lady Gaga as well, Mm -hmm. absolutely authentic. What I would emphasize is great about her performance. Of course, she can nail the musical numbers, and there are a number of them that really depend on her to carry them. I came away wowed by the way she pulled off the close-ups in this Mm -hmm. film, and there are a lot of them. A very smart choice Cooper made, uh, not only in recognizing that she would work in this role and work with him uh, and all the choices that went into that, but being comfortable with just giving her a close-up. And there are a couple that she sells. The very first scene where they meet and she's performing at a drag club, he has wandered in basically just looking to get a drink from somewhere else. This is after a concert of his own. And she starts walking atop the bar, lays down, reclines on it, turns her head just as part of her regular performance and their eyes lock. And the camera, this is in the trailer, so people are probably familiar with it. The camera just holds that moment and it's a wonderful moment of mysterious flirtation Mm -hmm. because you're not quite sure if she recognizes him right away and is she gives a little pause is it because she recognizes him is it for dramatic effect is because she just thinks he's a good-looking guy Mm -hmm. we don't know but there's something there and the hold on her face is wonderful there's another little throwaway moment of her raising her eyebrows at something he says and then there's one when he invites her to come on stage with him after their relationship has progressed and she steals herself collects herself. There's this expression of a resolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she goes out. And, and I just think there is there is an instinctiveness to her reactions in those scenes. I think she's better there than actually in the dialogue heavy scenes where you can see that's maybe something she's still getting used to. Um, but those close ups, mm-hmm. man, do they sing. So both of those elements definitely get a, a check mark in terms of authenticity. I want to say for later, the element that I think is decidedly inauthentic that if anything held me back from being as over the moon about this movie as okay. I I really wanted to because the key to liking this movie is to love it if that makes any hmm. sense this is this is a movie that and I don't swoons. love it either okay it, it's everything is big in this movie the musical crescendos the romantic declarations the the dreams that come true and then gaspingly are dashed um you have to embrace all that full-heartedly to, to really get carried away by this movie. And there are moments where I was, I wanted to. Uh, I think their meeting that you already alluded to, we can maybe talk a little bit more about that scene because it did work for me, but then things do start to trail off uh, for reasons maybe we'll get to later. Yeah, before we get maybe into any heavy spoilers with this, and if we do, we will certainly give everyone a warning. I saw today on Letterbox our friend David Ehrlich, his review of this movie, I think from Toronto. And he did like it. I think he gave it four out of five stars there on Letterboxd. And he had this pithy comment at the end, which was, the first half is 4.5 stars. The second half is three stars. The Shallow, (laughs) which is that key song, key performance, is eight stars. (laughs) And I'm mostly with him. I mean, if we're going to do the math, the first half of this movie for me is a four-star movie, maybe approaching four and a half that second half though is a little bit more like two and a half, and it's going to balance out for me right around three. Not that anyone is counting. The Shallow, though, I might give 18 stars. That's you how love much. that song, I huh? love that song, and I love the performance, and I think we'll get into that a little bit more. But I do want to ask you if generally you're on board with me and with David. Do you think it falls off? And if it does, is it simply a matter of the rise is always going to be more enjoyable than the fall of a burgeoning relationship? 
of right. stardom and seeing these two creative forces come together and make each other better? Is that just always going to be better than the opposite of that? It could be what I pinpointed, though, was more a matter of a change in perspective and a change in focus. Okay, I think we're going to agree on that. Okay, and, and, and crucially the lens with which the movie viewed that. Okay. Well, we sat next to each other. I think we saw a very similar film. Well, let's talk about a highlight then. Okay. Okay. And it is that scene where they meet in the drag club. I like how it is paired with him falling for her talent. Okay. Her, he's just entranced by her talent. Now he goes backstage and because he's drunk out of his mind at this point, he makes some fumbling, clumsy passes at her that don't land. But when he manages to bumble his way towards talking about her talent and what he recognizes there, there's a more interesting connection between them. And then the lovely choice to have, they agree to go out, get a drink together. So he goes out of the dressing room to wait for her to change and is asked to play one of his songs while he waits. The bar is closed at Mm -hmm. this point. And he gets up and does this very quiet, soft, you know, it's probably like 2 a.m. right now. So a late night rendition of one of his hits. Maybe it's time. And I'll say that's this is my favorite song yeah, in too. the film. By far, The Shallow is, I get why everyone's nuts about it. It's just not my kind of music. Hmm. So I can understand the poll it going on there. It close enough to me to Maybe It's Time, though. It's in really? the exact same family. Oh, no, that's like it a changes. powerhouse ballad. At it least, changes. It gets more powerful when the chorus changes, but certainly the where beginning. Begins. Yeah, the first few verses. And maybe I'm specifically talking about this quiet version of Maybe It's Time, where it's just him and his guitar mm-hmm. on a stage. He's really at that point, people have asked him to perform, but it's like a collection. It's maybe two or three people. Right. But I like that he still smiles during that, too. He still it's is because, enjoying it. to your point, yes. exactly. We've seen him on stage. I think the first time we see him on stage, he's not enjoying being there. But he but rocks he out is. when he gets into yeah, it. Yeah, he does, but he, he's he got to drink himself to that point, mm-hmm. um, and he's not happy when he gets done. Uh, so he can pull it together when he's got to. This is why he's still yes. working, right? But here on the stage, this quiet rendition, he's feeling the music, and here's what I want to get to. She comes out without him noticing from backstage and watches him for a minute, and she falls for his talent, too. Yes. She's entranced by him as well. And I think that connection, rather than some sort of cliched or vague romantic connection, is much more interesting to me. And also, to go back to the measurement you were using, very authentic. Yeah. I think, for me, as I consider why it goes astray in the second half, and I'm sure we will really get into some of those details here later— even if you know the previous Star is Born, there's a formula here. And I do know those films, having seen the 37 and 54 before I saw this film, and then the 76 later. This film still manages to trick you. Those performances and the authenticity of it, they still manage to trick you a little bit. I think that their discovery of her talent, the feelings they have for each other, you begin to think maybe that you are along for the ride with them, personally and professionally, and you don't know where this is going to go. And You want to see where it goes. Even if you stop to think about it, you would know exactly where it's going. There's that sense of discovery. And then the second half of the film does have a certain inevitability to it that I don't know that it completely overcomes. But in terms of why it works, and you've touched on some of these already as you talk about the shallow and the camera and the close-ups. At our screening, Bradley Cooper was there inexplicably without the hair and the beard. And I'll never (laughs) forgive him for that. He didn't get your memo. No. I'll never forgive him for that. But he's up there on the stage. He's doing a Q&A with Oliver Platt, the actor of yes. all people. Apparently they're great friends. They're great friends. And there was a moment when Platt said something about him as the star. And Cooper interrupted him and said, well, I think she's the star of the film. I think that 
Stephanie, Lady Gaga is the star of the film. And there was a little bit of it that you could maybe think, okay, that was a little falsely humble. But I believe that Cooper believes that he made a movie where she's the star of the movie. And when this movie really hums, I think it's about Cooper, the actor and director, supporting those who are essentially supporting him. It's how he gives the rest of the cast the opportunities they need to shine. You see it in a lot of places, but especially in that shallow performance. And I do love the song, and I think when she comes out and she really shows off those pipes, that is sufficiently chill-inducing on its own. And in the bad times I fear myself I think any movie like this needs that kind of chill moment. We may get to one or two others in our movie duets later. And there, Cooper, the director, and playing Jackson Maine, he's focused on making Ali a star. And Cooper, the director, wants the same. Great DP yes. here, Matthew Libatique. So how he frames Gaga there, not only those close-ups as she comes out, but that patience, that kind of adoring camera in those close-ups as she is singing that song, it allows us to take in the experience she's having on stage. He's just an observer. We are as well. And we're in a very good seat, obviously, for that. Now, Sam Elliott, you mentioned him briefly. I don't know what you need to say about Sam Elliott at this point. He's just so good as an actor. He doesn't need Bradley Cooper's help being great. But there is one moment in particular in this film that's devastating. And it's because, again, Cooper, as a writer and actor, sets Elliott up for such a powerful moment. Literally, he's delivering the line that prompts that devastating reaction. But then there is a director. He has the camera in just the right place. Mm -hmm. A very unconventional and yet seemingly totally natural place for that camera to be to capture that reaction. And we could draw this out to other elements of the film as well, but Dave Chappelle briefly appears and I think has a wonderful couple scenes. Andrew Dice Clay as Lady Gaga's father. I think is really, really good. He's got a little bit of that obnoxious charm to him that you would expect Andrew Dice Clay maybe to have, but he has none of that laugh-at-me smugness that we associate with his persona. And I think that relationship between father and daughter, its positives and its negatives, are all really expressed neatly in this film in just a few scenes between them. And credit goes to those performers, but also, as I said, to Cooper as both the writer and the director, and in some of those scenes, the actor. When the movie goes wrong is when it does start to become more focused on those two as individuals, not mm -hmm. as a couple, and then when we do get that shift in perspective. You're so right about the Elliot moment, and I'm not going to say any more because nope. it could very well end up as a most moving moment Me when too. we get to our year-end uh, show. So we'll see if that comes back. But yeah, that's great, and it is a lot about the choices that are made there as director. Picking, you know, or hiring Libatique as cinematographer is he's not kidding around right this is the guy who did requiem for a dream and black swan and i think the one version that i have been able to see is the 1954 james mason judy garland version and they really borrow heavily from the dramatic red lighting scheme that dominates so much of that film mm -hmm. that's carried over here sure. very effectively I and think. there are homages to all of the films oh i believe in it. various yeah. ways even though in that post-screening interview cooper downplayed yeah. the influences of those other films i think he said he didn't even watch them until after this project True. he had did been. say he had fun adding in the homage yeah though. yeah so so you'll find some of those and i did like that red lighting scheme the you know the 
the titles, the opening titles, it's a big Technicolor homage right out of the gate, mm-hmm. which may be too much for some people. It's kind of irresistible. I it's a little it. bit fun. Um, so one other technical thing, though, that I did like about the film is uh, the work with the editor here, Jay Cassidy. And a lot of these scenes, or moments at least, end abruptly, or at least before I expected them to, uh, we'll just suddenly get sent to another time and place. And I think this is especially the case in a couple instances of musical performance where it's just beginning or we they set themselves up by picking up an instrument and you think, oh, we're going to get another musical number here. And instead, it's interrupted by a hard cut. And it was just a jarring way. Mm-hmm. It did a couple things for me. It, it allowed the music to exist only in my imagination, that musical moment, which was kind of cool. But then it also works oppositely in that it undercuts the mythology of performance. Mm. It's it's like, rather than give you another big powerhouse chill moment, we're going to undercut that. And then frequently they would go to a scene that wasn't one of, of romantic mystery and music, but of difficult reality. So uh, just a few instances in the film where I think that was a really effective choice that surprise, you're talking about things that would surprise you in a movie that's, mm-hmm. you know, following a familiar trajectory. The editing was one thing that did surprise me. I think that fits with what I thought was the most interesting line and the most insightful line he had during the Q&A when he said he was mostly focused on trying to capture the way fame sounded. Yes, not, he did talk about right, sound not design the sound design as well fame is experienced in terms of how he didn't want a bunch of paparazzi buzzing around or anything like that. Or even if you think about it, we don't get any TMZ scenes or things like that that would really- It takes a while for that to move in. I was surprised by that. Like it's not until we finally get Saturday Night Live and, but that's well into the movie. You're right. They're mostly in their bubble. They are. And I don't know if it's a criticism of the film or not, but there were times where I was asking myself, what world does this exist in? You know, the sense of timelessness that maybe he wanted to capture by not really anchoring it to a specific time and place to the year 2017 or 2018. I get that impulse, but I think that's what makes all of the other Stars Born films, at least the two really good ones, so relatable and so pleasing and actually, ironically, so timeless. Those details of the time and place in which they were made make them something we will always feel like we can go back to. And this one is strangely out of time in a way As I said, I think he was going for that. I don't know if it maybe quite succeeds, but I think what you're talking about in terms of the editing ties back to that idea of trying to put us more in the same psychological space as him as a famous person, as opposed to showing it in other more tangible or everyday ways. I want to go back to the perspective a little bit, and I don't know if you're ready to talk about it, if it's going to get us too far into spoilers or not. I won't at this point, but there is this interesting switch that happens where she is clearly the star on the rise and his star is clearly on the decline. And so she gets a little bit more of the movie's focus, but at the same time, when he is at his lowest point, I'll say it's interesting that the camera spends all the time with him. Mm -hmm. So it becomes about us enduring the struggle from his perspective. And There are moments where then she is brought into those scenarios, literally, but also just sort of figuratively as a visitor. And I feel like we're visitors along with her. And we never really have a sense of what Allie's expectations and fears are, other than what Lady Gaga capably suggests as an actress. But it's really all about the process he, Jackson Maine, and I suppose by extension, he, Bradley Cooper, the actor, 
is going through. And she's lost a little bit in that, even as I feel like the movie ultimately is supposed to be a little bit more turned towards her. I certainly felt like I wanted it to be turned more towards her, but we didn't get that. Yeah, I had a similar reaction. For me, it wasn't only that she became a visitor, which I think is true. It's that she becomes an instigator Mm -hmm. in a way of his alcoholism. And I would say the film shifts more, not so much to him specifically as a character, but to his struggle with alcohol. And the problem is it doesn't lose that romanticism that it had in all those other scenes. I, I would, you know... By no means say that this movie is glorifying his drinking problem, but it is using it for melodrama rather than tragedy. Okay, so we get a lot of scenes where, oh, no, what's going to cause him to drink now? And that became tiresome because, for one thing, it's placing the problems on those things causing him to drink, not on any responsibility of his own, or he he just seems to be a guy who keeps having these things happen to him, right? Um, And it's a little bit of a pity party in a way. And I think this becomes especially troublesome when it intertwines with Ali's rising success. So think about that one argument they're having, and he actually tells her her music is embarrassing. And I think I do think it's interesting too that in this movie's world, having backup dancers is a sign of selling out. And that's just curious to me when you think about Lady Gaga's career, right? There becomes this very obvious dichotomy where Jackson's music, this more rootsy rock country-ish stuff is real music hmm. and where she eventually ends up going from the character's perspective. Is, well, from the film's perspective, Perhaps. I would say as I well. I think we're able to write him and his opinion off. I don't know. That yeah. Saturday Night Live performance I think we're supposed to take as she has sold out, it's exploitative, and she's not truly connecting. She's not saying what she always tells her, what she, she should might be saying. Not be. I okay. like that the movie opens up that complexity. Right. But Adam, it's it's also clearly marking her as making the wrong choices. And here's where the problem comes in. That Saturday Night Live performance is one of the instances that drives him to the bottle. So what's happening here is basically the implication, I think, is that if only Ali made true music, his kind of music, he wouldn't need to drink. His kind of music, his truth, though, I think is but, the key. But I, I believe, again, with that romantic lens, the film wants us to agree with him. Perhaps. Are there any other aspects of the film you want to touch on before we get into any spoilers? Yeah, we can probably jump into spoilers at this point. Okay, let's go ahead and do that. You actually were the one who suggested that we should save a little time for it. So what do you want to go deep on? Okay, so I had not seen the 1954 A Star is Born before I saw this one, the Cooper one. Um, So you had said you weren't surprised at all that... Jackson Maine in the final moments of the film kills himself. Right. Um, that's obviously because that happens the in the versions. 54 version. And yes. yeah, that's the that's one I've the seen. inevitability. So it, it was a bit of surprise to me. So I was like, yeah, we got to talk about that. I, I want to hear how you felt about it. So maybe you don't have as strong an opinion because you expected it a little bit more. For me, what happens is it does tie into the complaints I was just giving in the fact that it, it romanticizes his struggles. Yes. And there's a particular shot even of him putting his hat down, which he's worn throughout the film. It's something of a symbol for him. Just the way it focuses on him laying it down. It's this grand gesture. 
This was the most self-aggrandizing bit of the movie and is complicated by the fact that it's parallel cut with her giving a concert performance that she expects him to come and join her on stage for. And again, it intertwines those things to me in a in a very troubling way that for some reason her music, her pursuit of fame uh, is responsible for his illness and the demons that he's struggling hmm. with. And again, like I, I don't want to mischaracterize this either by saying, you know, he was just making the wrong choices. I realize alcoholism as a disease is much more complicated than that. I do think including this suicide element that it is shifting a lot of responsibility onto her and at least Hmm. her musical choices. Yeah, I still felt very much like the movie is saying his demons are his demons. And in all of these films, it is a case where that character, the Jackson main character, is making a choice to effectively martyr himself. So how can it not, in a way, aggrandize it? Okay, that's that's an element to this for sure. Right. They are sacrificing themselves in order— for the woman they love, the performer they love, to go on and succeed because they believe that they are inevitably just going to hold them back. I think, I think the, mar- the martyring element was much more convincing in the 54 version for me yeah. than it is here. Yeah, here it I seems more of a, of a um, self-contained choice. Well, the thing that bugs me about it, actually, one of the scenes I didn't like at all is the event, if you will, that precipitates his decision, where her producer, her young, hip producer, comes and basically drives him to kill himself. Like, that moment happens in other versions of A Star is Born, but it's not that blatant as far as someone saying, you are to blame for this, and you are in her way. It's not a decision almost that they make on their own. It's a decision that someone else is forcing Mm. him into that decision. And I felt like It was inauthentic. Honestly, I felt like it was inauthentic. I didn't believe in that moment that that character, no matter how closely he is aligned with Allie, no matter how closely he's aligned with her success and wants it and is frustrated and disappointed in Jackson, I didn't buy that he would be that callous in that moment Mm -hmm. and that he would, with so fine a point on it, illustrate to him all of his failures and basically suggest you should kill yourself. That's what he says without coming out and saying Yeah, you're right, you're right. And that scene did bug me. Now, my other problem with the end of this film in general is you have a movie that's full of pretty decent music. I think a lot of the Jackson Maine stuff we see him performing on stage, I can take or leave. I don't really like any of those songs other than Maybe It's Time, The Shallow, I think is wonderful. The other stuff is okay. The end song the final performance of the film is the kind of inspirational power ballad that you'd hear in a cheesy 80s movie to me, or maybe Aerosmith would have played it in the mid-90s when they were getting popular again. Gaga nails it. Don't get me wrong. She nails it. She's got the ability, obviously, and she's got the conviction. She does bring that, but it wasn't believable to me, first of all, as a song he'd write in the first place, even though I think about the other versions like the 76, it's meant to be a departure for him. It still doesn't feel like his kind of song, even when we see him play part of it. Right. I think that's part of the problem. It still doesn't feel authentic. And it's just, as far as I'm concerned, and I know this is subjective, It's a really bad song. And so in that moment, any feelings I'm supposed to have, any emotion that's supposed to be carrying me away, I did not feel at all. Yeah. I'll say it this way. As I said before, just not my kind of music. I'd agree with that. But I do think in the narrative of the film, it doesn't make a lot of sense either. In my 
you know, schematic of is it his music or her music, which I know you're not entirely on board with, but where do you think that falls? Are we supposed to take that as she's reclaimed her voice? Like this is how he would have wanted her to sing because it's in a dedication environment. Like she's, it's to his memory that she's singing. Yeah. And I was trying, because it is this weird style that we haven't entirely maybe encountered before. Maybe that's what before. it's supposed to be, I didn't a hybrid. Know, yeah, a hybrid or, For or me, her next step, maybe. And having just watched the 76, as I've said a few times, it ends very similarly, where Barbara Streisand's Esther has accidentally, in this case, come across a recording of a demo, basically, he had made of one last song. It's kind of like... He's come back from the dead Mm, almost. She didn't know this existed. So then she takes it, makes it her own, and performs it. And I felt like this movie was basically trying to do the same thing with that, where I don't know how we're supposed to feel about it other than it's her taking something that was his final expression of their love, and she's making it her own. But I didn't like the song. (laughs) I just didn't like the song at all, unfortunately. A Star is Born is out in wide release this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also send us an MP3 file or leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. You do have to perform the voicemail as Sam Elliott or... Sing it like Lady Gaga. Yes, please. All right, lots more music talk when we come back. The film spotting poll asking about your favorite musical drama since 1976 as A Star is Born. And the film spotting top five, where Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune joins us to discuss our favorite movie duets. Stay with us. Tell me something, girl. Are you happy in this modern world? Oh, do you Is there something else you're searching for? I'll fall in all the good times I find myself longing for change, and in the bad times I fear myself. Ryan Gosling with Claire Foy and Patrick Fugit in the trailer for First Man. It's Damien Chazelle's new film about the space mission that made Neil Armstrong the first man on the moon. It opens wide next weekend. Rapturous responses for this film coming out of film festivals. At least, I believe, Toronto is where I was seeing a lot of the tweets. You've got Damien Chazelle coming off the success of La La Land. He's a really good director and a really acclaimed director now between La La Land and, of course, Whiplash before that. His first film, Guy and Madeline on a park bench, very good as well. Maybe not quite the same class of film, at least in terms of its budget and acclaim as his last two. But I definitely thought, well, First Man's probably going to be a pretty decent film because he is such a solid filmmaker. Maybe was a little bit surprised 
at how crazy everyone's going for it. I'm not sure why. It just seems like it could be pretty traditional fare. Yeah, but... I guess. Is it a matter of genre is what I was going to ask? Because that's kind of what it is for me. Like, I, right. I'll be honest. I wish he was making another musical. Um, not a huge fan of the biopics, but as you said, it is Giselle. And I've liked his two previous films. I hope to catch up with Guy and Madeline before I see this. So I'm definitely still anticipating it. Glad it's well received so far. Maybe on the moon. Neil Armstrong does a little soft shoe. I can only hope. Next week, we will review First Man, and we will share right now our top five. Josh Larson recommended, (laughs) Josh Larson suggested, movie astronauts. It's not like it's a brilliant idea. I mean, it's like the first thing that came to mind. So I I mean, it's better than Manimals. I don't really, well, I would argue it's not. It's way more boring than Manimals. As a diehard fan, longtime listeners know, of the right stuff. I will probably find room for at least one of the Mercury 7. See, I, I thought I was movie astronauts. tossing you a gimme here. Now, I don't know if there are any others that I love as much as the astronauts in the right stuff, but I think I'll be able to fill out my top five. If you have thoughts on that list, any suggestions, anybody you don't want us to overlook. Wasn't there a Johnny Depp movie? Where he goes into space and he comes back and he's married to Charlize Theron. Oh, yes. Things don't go well. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be on my list. No, I've never seen it. So not going to make mine either. You can share any suggestions you do have by emailing us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, if you click on events, you can often find free movie passes. And almost always, Josh, these passes are only for Chicago listeners. This one came and went. We didn't get a chance to give everyone enough of a notice, but anyone who does regularly check out that page, if they came in the past week or so, they saw that we were giving away passes to see First Man during its run across the country, lots of cities featuring those screenings, and we were happy to give those away. Now, if you're in Chicago and you want to go see the movie we reviewed and recommended last week on the show, The Sisters Brothers, that is possible by clicking on the link there and entering. You might just be lucky enough to win passes to see it during its run here in the city. The Astronaut's Wife, the astronaut's 1999, wife. somehow missing from the Larson on Film Archive. So I really, can, I, can, I know I've but seen, you have it. seen it. I have seen it. I, I cannot okay. I, say where I land. I want that review on my desk by 9 a.m. <laughs> now an announcement that has been a long time coming. I don't know how many people have actually been anticipating it, but... The Film Spotting newsletter is a thing that actually exists in the world. Oh, it was very exciting. I, I opened up my email and, and got a, a, a test yeah. example of this from Sam. Yep. Thrilling. It is thrilling. We have had a form on our website since the new website launched, which has to be at least a year ago. And people have been signing up for it. And maybe they thought it was going into their spam filter. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking, but they weren't getting a newsletter. Usually when you sign up for one. You get an email or two. There hasn't been an outrage? Where's my newsletter? There hasn't been an outrage. But the response so far has been very good. A good open rate, as they say in the industry. So it did go out. The official one did go out. I only got the test. Oh, well, maybe you didn't sign up. You don't don't (laughs) want the news. You you already knew it. That's it. I didn't sign up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Maybe you didn't sign up. You, the film spotting listener, didn't sign up like Josh, and you need to remedy that. couple ways you can do it. You can go to our main page, and it's there. There's a box. Just scroll down. You'll see it. It's in the middle of the page, maybe about three-quarters of the way down. Or you can find it even easier if you go to Episodes. 
Just click on the episodes link, scroll down a little bit, and there is the blank to put in your email address and start getting the film spotting newsletter. It is the sequel to The Dope Sheet that no one was waiting for. Longtime listener Jeff Houston used to help us with The Dope Sheet. It was our weekly look at the show and what was coming. You will find a recap of the previous week's show, a look ahead to future episodes, news about events, meetups, and movie passes. In fact, as we are thinking about more live shows in the future, people who are subscribed to the newsletter, you're going to get a first go at getting those tickets. And you'll also get a first look at the film spotting poll questions. There's something new as well, Josh. Partial show transcriptions. Taking some of our review, some of the main review, actually transcribing it if someone wants to I suppose, really examine it yeah, thoroughly. That was the part of the test email that gave me pause. I, I, I didn't know we <laughs> Sam's were doing idea. that. And people may like it. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. And <laughs> There's a reason why it's a conversation the, yes, and not a written read review. Read all my mumbling and bumbling. No, thank you. But <laughs> listeners, future, have at it. Indeed. In the future, we may have some bonus content and we would like to incorporate your feedback We'd love to incorporate any of your suggestions if you got that first newsletter and you have ideas on how to improve it or you subscribe and have thoughts down the road. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Again, go to filmspotting.net slash episodes to sign up. It's so easy. I did it while you were talking. I'm, I'm love on. it. I'm going to get it tomorrow. No, next week. Next week I'll get it. I next can't week. wait. Quick note of thanks. I want to say to those who came out last Friday to our Twin Cities meetup. We had a good time. I think there were about 11 of us there. Somehow, Adam, I don't know why this keeps happening. The one film we really blew up about last year, Three Billboards, mm-hmm. now, that's what I have to talk about when I meet listeners at meetups. They, Is they everybody keep... Team Josh or? Um, no, no, it was actually, there was a defender of three billboards that uh, wanted to get in a little bit deeper about the film. I think I- And meet I, you in the parking lot I think afterwards. No, I think I swayed him. So, oh, so score I'm, that. No, there's, score there's that no for chance. Me. <laughs> of course, this being the year of Isle of Dogs, we had some great Wes Anderson talk. There were requests for more marathons. And I said, I get it. One of my favorite parts of doing this show and- I asked them, could you create more hours in the day? And and then we'll be able to... That's the problem. That's the problem. Then we'll be able to meet that. So also wanted to say thanks to the University of St. Thomas there in St. Paul uh, for bringing me out. I was there for a talk earlier in the night, uh, a workshop we did on Toy Story as a prayer of confession. And if you know of any place, university, college, maybe a conference that would be interested in me doing that. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to get out there and talk to people, not only about the book, but just movies in general. Mm -hmm. And it's been a lot of fun. So find me either through the show or on social media and let me know if you'd like me to come do that. I appreciate the most, Josh, that so far the honorariums for these talks that you're doing on these campuses cover the liquor bill later. (laughs) So I was going to say, very conscientious. Of I you. don't bring the honorariums back to you. I just bring you the receipt. Oh, for the bill. Mm. That's not how I envisioned it going. But <laughs> nope. okay. <laughs> so we haven't had many new marathons here on the show lately, but we have had a little run of Sacred Cow and Blind Spotting reviews recently. Deliverance in honor of Burt Reynolds passing. That was a blind spot for both of us. Lawrence of Arabia a couple weeks back after its run here in Chicago at the Music Box, and then just last week another Sacred Cow, a 15th anniversary look at Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. I did the math, Josh. We are up to thirty. Five sacred cows here now nice. in the show's history. You can find links to all those if you go to filmspotting.net slash 
list. So you can listen to them there, obviously, if you've missed any or want to revisit them, or if you just want to see that list of 35 movies that have gotten the Sacred Cow treatment. It's all there, filmspotting.net slash list. And we got a great little bit of feedback here. We got a lot of good feedback on the Lost in Translation discussion, but wanted to feature this one from Adam Grossman in Vancouver. Like any self-respecting film fan, whenever I list my 10 favorites of all time, there are at least 20 films in that list, but Lost in Translation will never be outside of my top five. I'm not sure any other movie has ever so brilliantly captured the isolation and claustrophobia that echoes out of any failing relationship and our simple human need for connection and the chance for renewal, all shot through the almost sci-fi-like neon of nighttime Tokyo. I'm someone who puts a huge amount of weight and expectation on every movie's final shot, and the much-studied climax of Lost in Translation is inventive moving and really just perfection. For me, Lost in Translation can only be matched in modern cinema by Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy and Koganada's Golden Brick winning Columbus as movies which explore the very nature of what it is to be human. From Bob and Charlotte to Jesse and Celine to Jin and Casey, these are characters in movies that feel real who tell us something about our lives and demand that we keep going back to them because we love them. Let's get this over with, guys. Put Lost in Mm. Translation in the pantheon. Great stuff from Adam. A great plea for Lost in Translation to be in the pantheon. I don't know if we've ever exactly touched on this on the show, but that was the intention of our esteemed producer, Sam Van Hogren, that not only would we decide at the end of every Sacred Cow review whether or not it was a Sacred Cow or, I suppose, a false idol. And we've never really gone out and yeah, stated that. We haven't made those declarations. <laughs> but everyone we? probably gets the idea. The thinking was, well, if it's a Sacred Cow and it's as good as a Sacred Cow in theory is, then if we're both all in, then maybe it should go into the Pantheon. Yeah, I think we need to get back to being more disciplined about that. I, I like maybe. issuing a final decision. At the end of those reviews. I know you would be on board with Lost in Translation going Well, this in. is the thing. You, it, people can already hear the hesitation in your voice. Yes. And if you listen to that Sacred Cow review, yeah. I had to do a little convincing. You did. Um, where are you? Would you be okay with that? Let me put this as, as context. Okay. The Pantheon, largely formed before I joined the show. Yes. Miraculously, at that point, a list of films You're I all okay with. either really liked or I was okay with. I mm-hmm. thought they were, you know, good film. I would say... You like Lost in Translation perhaps as much as I like Midnight Run. <laughs> Does that sound fair? Yeah, probably. Okay. Yeah, that's I mean, probably just, accurate. Just to kind of, you know, yes, one way of thinking about this. And some of those movies were driven a little bit by nostalgia, and Midnight Run is one of them, though I would watch Midnight Run tonight if I had the time. That's how good I think that film is. That said, Lost in Translation for me passes the test of justifying its acclaim and you love it, and our producer Sam loves it on his revisit, gave it five out of five stars, I believe, on Letterboxd. Nice. It just isn't in my gut to be in the Pantheon. It are, just doesn't pass the gut test. Are you kidding me? No. All right. This, I don't you have realize that personal this is attachment go, this to This is, this is I going to I necessitate it. a campaign, <laughs> a write-in compa- campaign, some sort of campaign to sway you. I can't wait. That for, it has to. I can't wait for all the emails. It has to meet the standards. But my gut, now I got to go back and, and look at all those titles yeah, and I know. check and them with my them. gut. Yeah, you do. I, I don't think I was doing that the first Send time around. Send those emails to me at josh at larsonfilm.com. I can forward. <laughs> Last week's show was one where we also played Massacre Theater. That's where we perform a scene from a well-known film. You get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. If you haven't gotten around to listening to this very special whispery 
Wolfington Brothers edition of Massacre Theater, there's still time to get your entry in. Here's what you missed. All right, listen. We both go outside, move around the house in opposite directions. We act crazy, insane with anger. Make them crap in their pants. Force them around till we meet up on the other side. Explain act crazy. Gotta be an easy one, I would think. How, how are submissions so far? Not bad. Okay. Certainly more than The Grey. Well, yes. Last time, but almost any hope. massacre theater <laughs> is more than The Grey. So if you are one of those people who is correctly able to identify the film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You have until Monday, October 8th to get that entry in, and you just might win your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. The girl. It's all about the girl, isn't it? Yeah, the girl, yeah. And you're going to use somebody else's art to get her? Are you kidding? We're just starting. We need to learn how to play. Do the Sax Pistols know how to play? You don't need to know how to play. Who are you, Steely Dan? You need to learn how not to play, Connor. That's the trick. That's rock and roll. And that takes practice. I mean, now we're talking about Pantheon-level movies. Am I uh, right? No. no. <laughs> the gut the gut is a no? little, little oh. rumbly here. Okay, so no, we're, I, like, we're I liked Sing Street. I know. I know you liked it. And I know that that's not sufficient for me. But Jack Rayner, or as I like to call him, Irish Seth Rogen, with... Ferdia Walsh Pilo in John Carney's Sing Street, according to one very wise critic, the second best film of 2016. You still feel good about that? It's a I good do. spot for it? Yeah, All I right. think. I mean, it's top five for sure. Sing Street among the options we gave you a couple weeks back when we asked you this. What is the best original musical drama? No biopics. No straight up musicals. Since The Last Star is Born. So since 1976, the choices in chronological order were... Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark, which I said this last week, probably should have been disqualified because it is actually a musical. So strike one against us. Craig Brewer's Hustle and Flow, John Carney's Once, the Coen brothers Inside Lewin Davis, Lenny Abramson's Frank, starring Donald Gleason, John Carney's Sing Street, or other Josh, how did it come out? Last place went to Hustle and Flow with 3% of the vote, Frank. Got 5% of the vote. Other received 6%. And most votes for other were disqualified for various reasons. I understand it looks like La La Land was the most popular other vote. But that, like Dancer in the Dark, (laughs) is a musical. Not a musical drama. We're inconsistent. So, yeah. Speaking of Dancer in the Dark, that came next with 9% of the vote. Then we got a little bit of a jump here to the top three. John Carney's Sing Street received 17%. His Once Got 21% of the vote, but the Coen brothers, as they tend to do in contests on this show, Mm. won. Inside Lewin Davis got 39% of the vote. Yeah, not really a surprise. The Coen brothers won, but Carney's two films, I mean, if you're doing the math, they add up to 38%, so I'm happy to see that. The Coen brothers, though, the winners of our Film Spotting Madness director's bracket and Fargo, the surprise winner of last year's Best of the 90s bracket. Some listeners actually did go so far as to suggest, Josh, that the Coen brothers maybe just need to be put in their own Film Spotting poll pantheon. It's time to retire the Coens from polls, unless, I suppose, they're up against themselves. Well, that might be a good idea. Do we need to start putting that in every wording of the question? If the Coen brothers apply, they do not count. They're not eligible. I want, If only they had enough films to do their own bracket, just a Coen's bracket. I would like to do that, actually. Yeah. That'd be fun. 2038. There you go. A little bit of feedback from Nick. Lewin Davis is my favorite movie on this list, but I love the actual musical aspects of Once Better, so I'm voting for it. Falling slowly when your mind's made up, 
Oscar Isaac and the Cones can't match those sublime musical moments. I have a feeling we'll be hearing more about those mm. in just a little bit. We also heard from Xander Caceres. I hope that's right. Xander, every time I think about once, it moves up the list of my all-time faves, currently sitting at number three. Oh, whoops. Now it's number two. Sorry, Miller's Crossing. Speaking oh, of that hurts. Sacred Cow revisits Miller's Crossing. For me, that jumped way up my personal list of favorite movies after seeing it again. Hit you in the gut. It's in the pantheon. It did. That's what matters most, the gut, Josh. <laughs> I got to figure this Forget gut this out. Forget this intellectual thing you keep bringing to film criticism. It's all about the gut. Adam Fromm says, some people make musicals, some make movies about music, and some make movies about musicians. John Carney's gift, however, is giving us movies about the act of making music and the fragile but real magic that act contains. The best music is the result of an unexplained alchemy that makes it exponentially greater than the sum of its parts. And while I adore Sing Street almost as much as Adam does, once is one of those rare works that has crossed over for me from film to sacred text, precisely because of the way it lays that alchemy bare. Now, Adam goes on to say some more eloquent things about once and... Yeah, spoiler alert, I might just steal some of those comments and share them during the top five. More Carney praise here from Michael Green. After Adam made me aware of Sing Street in 2016, I have watched it five or six times and bought the soundtrack and worn it out. It has to be Sing Street. It has to. Close, Michael. Alice Quinn in Melbourne, Australia closes out our comments. I had to throw in another vote for the movie. I've watched more times than I care to admit, Velvet Goldmine. It bypasses your biopic rule, Alice says, because while it draws inspiration from David Bowie and Iggy Pop, it is decisively not about them. Todd Haynes draws a direct line of inspiration between Oscar Wilde dandyism to glam rock. It is a glitter bomb of beautiful queer people, and the soundtrack is amazing. David Bowie not giving Haynes rights to his music was an unexpected gift to all of us. What's more, it's a movie made for cinephiles and music historians alike. I do like Velvet Goldmine. I applaud Alice for jumping through all our poll question hoops. She did, and there have been a lot of hoops recently. So as we get to our new poll question, we hope everyone can appreciate the simplicity of it. <laughs> I do. The straightforwardness of it. I do too. We've been waiting for a question <laughs> like this for some time and Sam hit on one. We're looking ahead a few weeks. We've got a couple of high profile horror films coming out. David Gordon Green's Halloween opens on the 19th. It's a sequel set 40 years after Carpenter's 1978 classic. Something about Mike Myers in a prison break. Jamie Lee Curtis returning for that one. Now the following week, it's Call Me By Your Name director, Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria, a remake of Dario Argento's 1977 cult classic. That one opens in limited release on November 2nd, and the original Suspiria famously just destroyed by my co-host at the time, now producer, Sam. I hope he revisits it. I hope he does, too. As we will be doing. Are we going to do reviews? you got a lot of horror coming up. You ready I don't for know this? about revisiting Suspiria, but maybe. I certainly would like to because it has been over 10 years. Somehow I don't see Sam taking the plunge. No. I mean, it's visceral. I can remember sitting across from him and listening to his thoughts on that film and how much he hated it. Oh, so okay. I don't know if he's ready to go back to Suspiria. We will find out. So your question, no complicated exceptions, no confounding criteria. You can only see one, Josh, Halloween or Suspiria. Which one is it? I'm going to say Halloween. I'm more intrigued by Suspiria, okay. having not seen the original ah. and always wanting to. So I, I like that as sort of a, a new experience for me. And I do like that Guadagnino mm -hmm. is directing. That's a very curious thing. Also curious that David Gordon Green is doing Halloween. But for me, I got to face up to the fact that 
I am not a fan of the original. Have not seen it in a very long time. I think I watched it for the first and only time before the one of the maybe the Rob Zombie remake might have been it is when I finally caught up with Halloween. And, and right you being now, you you like the Rob Zombie version better? Uh, no, no, <laughs> no. But right now, seventy five percent of the listeners, if not more, have written anything off that I've said on this entire show because Halloween is like the cinephile horror movie, right? Yeah. I am. I might watch tomorrow night. I've, I've got it at home. I'm ready to do this, eager to do this. Hopefully, we'll come on this show with a mea culpa and Hopefully. say how wrong I was. <laughs> so that project ahead of me is more compelling than Suspiria. A long okay, way. But that's, now I've, that's I've not given, even really about the new Halloween, though. This is how I'm, cho- this is how I'm choosing. Is that what your gut is telling you? Exactly. <laughs> And I've also somehow made my answer as complicated as our previous week's poll question. So I've ruined the simplicity. I should have just said Halloween. So I think I suggested that we would, though it's an obvious choice, we would do a sacred cow of the original Halloween and do that in conjunction with this new version. I forgot that I had to be scared about how that conversation would go. And now I'm not sure. <laughs> you want to retract that plan? Maybe we need to come up with an alternative no, plan. No, we got to do it. For this, that is, episode. this is something I, I've, I've been meaning to test myself with for a long time. Okay. So. I might end up enjoying the new Halloween more, but there's just no question. This is one of those super easy choices. With my simple approach, if I'm walking into the theater, mm-hmm. I can only see one and I make the choice. I'll never see the other one. I can live without seeing the new Halloween. Mm, okay. But I really am curious to see what Guadagnino is going to do with Dario Argento's film. We want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Jay can't afford the Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. I just want to know what he represents. The man is infested with disciples. I'm the apostle. Just like me and God. How could you tell us apart? John Huston in the trailer for Orson Welles, The Other Side of the Wind. I'm not going to get into all the details about why it took 40 years for this film to make it to the big screen because we don't have the time, but also I'm not armed with all of those details. But after debuting in August at the Venice Film Festival, it's coming here to Chicago to play the 54th annual Chicago International Film Festival. And then it goes into the Netflix algorithm starting, I think, November 2nd. Now, if there was a Netflix algorithm for film critics, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune would come up for me every time. And he's here with us in studio. Oh, man. Michael I'm, Phillips, thank you for I'm joining us. Even I'm rolling my thank eyes you. at that one, Michael. Oh, I thought that was, I don't know. I thought that was I, radio I, gold. It's, I think all I can imagine is like, well, you got an algorithm of a critic. You don't need the real critic. So thanks for putting me out of work, pal. <laughs> the 54th annual film festival, as I said, is upon us. It actually opens Wednesday, October 10th. Its opening night screening is Beautiful Boy, starring Steve Carell and the great Timothy Chalamet. That fest runs through October 21st. And if you're curious, more information is available at chicagofilmfestival.com. I thought we would do a little preview of the fest here by having a little fun where I'm just going to throw out the movies that most appealed to me at kind of a cursory glance through the Chicago Film Fest guide. And then maybe five more titles that are a little more under the radar than these five first titles you're going to hear. And I thought it'd be nice to get Josh's reaction, see if we're 
not in sync at all on some of these picks, maybe some movies that I overlooked. But also, Michael, you have been traveling about a lot lately. You were at the Venice Film Festival. You were at the Toronto Film Festival. It's possible you've seen a good chunk of these films. You can tell us whether or not we should be excited. Didn't see any movies at those festivals. I no. just, I, you know, <laughs> in Venice, it's just, yeah, the weather's, you know, typically very good. Just getting a gondola. It was a little under under this year, but uh, the, the gelato and the uh, the various pestos. I like your approach. Uh, Priori- priorities. I, I, just, I understand. I, didn't, I never quite made it to a film. Okay, this is going to no, play no, out okay. how I thought it would then. <laughs> no, I'm Let's ready. Let's go ahead I'm and start. Ready. Here's my top five, from five down to one. The movies that, if time was permitting... I could go see any movie at the fest I wanted to see. I would start with these five titles. Widows, the new one from Steve McQueen, co-written by McQueen and Gillian Flynn. It's a crime drama set right here in Chicago. Great-looking cast. Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, Carrie Coon, Elizabeth Debicki, who I love, and Liam Neeson and Colin Farrell even appear there. My number four is Cold War, the latest from Ida director Pavel Pavlikovsky. It's a love story set against the backdrop of the Cold War in 1950s Eastern Europe. My number three is Shoplifters, the latest from Hirokazu Koreeda. It actually did win the Palm d'Or at Cannes. It's about a family of small-time crooks who take in a child they find on the street. My number two is the latest movie from Olivier Assayas. It's called Nonfiction or Double Lives. It is set in the publishing world of Paris, and according to the description, an editor and an author find themselves in over their heads as they cope with a middle-aged crisis, the changing industry, and their wives, Juliette Binoche is in the cast, always does amazing work, and especially has done some amazing work with Asayas. And finally, we're sticking with the foreign language film theme. My number one is Roma, the latest from Alfonso Uh, Coron. Yes. So, Michael, your initial thoughts, how did I do? Have you seen any of these, and do you recommend them? Amazing taste, Adam. Thank you so uh, much. When did that happen? I mean, I've been on this show for years. I listened to it Episode recreationally. Episode 700. <laughs> yep, it's taken 700 it. episodes. Now, this is this is the conundrum of a of a, any decent-sized film festival. Now, we should say the, the Chicago Film Festival this year is 12 days, not 15 like other years. So it's, it's a little tighter, which I actually think is for the better. Uh, than it has been in past years. But the question for anybody going in to a a festival, this one, let's say, is do you take a chance on the movies that aren't going to open in two months? Or do you really want to just kind of be, you know, yeah, I've been hearing a lot about Mm -hmm. this. You know, say, for example, Roma, the Alfonso Cuaron film, uh, you know, should should you just give in to your impulse and say, yes, give it to me now. You know, I don't want to wait. That is the battle. That is the battle. I think you've clearly, uh, you know, lost the battle for seeing something you don't, right. you know, cold. You know, yeah. I could take a chance on something It's my new. regret list for not going to Venice or Toronto. Well, well, you know, or can. Well, for various reasons, I regret going to both. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it's nice to reacquaint yourself with the family after you come back, uh, after, you know, 12 days of gallivanting. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yes, you, you've picked some very good ones. And Widows, I was particularly just relieved to have a good time with. Oh, that's I mean, this, good to hear. Yeah, really, really good. And and it's based on an old 1980s British miniseries uh, that was that's about the the wives of these these criminal lowlifes who find themselves suddenly you know without husbands because they die in this robbery attempt and. Uh, and then they, the the mob is kind of putting the heat on them to you know come up with the money that was disappeared in this robbery. So they have to they have one month to execute um, a, a heist of their own uh, and then avoid getting killed. So this is a pretty solid premise, and I I really enjoyed what Steve McQueen and Gillian Flynn 
have done in terms of making this kind of a Chicago, a really violent, sleek Chicago fairy tale? Is it realistic in its portrait of the fact that every alderman, every every Chicago teachers union employee, every everybody in Chicago is basically uh, an amoral killer. I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're really thin-skinned in a Chicago, and you might think, you know, do we need another black eye cinematically? On the other hand, uh, this film has really sort of got the juice. It's really it's Steve McQueen's. Uh, you know, I don't think he's slumming at all. I think he's just simply doing a really good piece of pulp mm-hmm. fiction. And I don't know. I really, I really went for it. So good work on Widows, pal. Okay. Yeah. So that film, we do plan to discuss it on November 16th, that episode, at least looking at the Chicago slate right now, it's supposed to come out that weekend, Friday, November 16th. So yeah, whether or not would... we see it at the fest or not. That would have been the top of my list. I'd agree with most of the titles you have there, Adam, definitely. If I were to add a few that I saw, probably I'd include Mario Heller's Can You Ever Forgive Me with Melissa McCarthy in slightly more of a dramatic role. I, I hear it's great. One. I have not seen that. Okay. I, yeah, I, I, really I definitely good. want to see that. Everybody knows from Asghar Farhadi. I knew yes. that was coming out. I did not realize it's a psychological thriller with Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem. So there my interest level only rises. And then, of course, favorite of the show, Yorgos Lanthimos has the favorite, and this is a set in 18th century English court uh, of Queen Anne, has Emma Stone as a servant, so some interesting twists compared to his previous films. I'm ready to go back for more Lanthimos pain, which, the good kind of pain, the <laughs> killing of a sacred deer I was kind of iffy on, so it was like double pain, but right. I really, if this is him back at his best... I'm excited about that. Okay, so before I get to maybe some under-the-radar titles, were there any others there, Michael, that you have seen or have heard a lot of good things about? Again, Cold War, Shoplifters, The Assayas Nonfiction, or Roma. You reacted to the Quran. Oh, have I love it. Very, very strong on Roma. And and that's a film that Netflix. it's a Netflix acquisition. But I think they are going to release it in a limited way theatrically. This is a film that really needs to be seen in a, in a theater. It just is. It's beautiful, big, widescreen, black and white imagery. It's 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 Cuarón revisiting his 1970s childhood in Mexico City. The film is not anybody's idea of a typical. Um, uh, kind of reminiscence or sentimental memoir of a filmmaker thinking about, oh, what was it like when I was 10 or 12 and my parents were breaking up and this is what my family dynamic was like. It's really this kind of fantastic um, series of, it's almost like a series of dioramas that come and go where you have these really, really amazingly detailed scenes and vignettes, often without much dialogue, where you just simply kind of get, it's like one huge chapter, but a very elusive kind of dreamy, you know, not not real. It's you know, it's a funny mixture of realism and complete kind of poetic evocation. I really, I really cannot wait to see it a second time. It doesn't have a big narrative motor, and I don't think it's it doesn't make a grab for your tear ducts. So I think people reading the description are going to be a little bit misled because it's like, well, you know, I never really got that sort of you know big sentimental push in the picture. But it's. It's working on different levels. It's it's really good, but yeah, really good. I'm not really I'm not really I don't I lack the created gene as a as a critic for the filmmaker. I, I admire the Japanese director's work. Mostly a blind spot it. for us. We've talked about him as a potential marathon candidate. I think we've yeah. seen one or two movies, but that's yeah, it. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, I know that uh, you know the new artistic director at the Chicago Film Festival, Mimi Plauchet, is a big fan of Coriander and big fan of Shoplifters, which won the top prize at Cannes. But you know, on first pass, not didn't love it. 
Really did enjoy the Asayas nonfiction. I would definitely nice. recommend that. Can't wait to see things like The Favorite, Josh. You mentioned The Lanthimos, which I hear is wonderful and re- really sort of back in high form for him up to the dog tooth level and maybe, um, uh, although I actually prefer the lobster, I think. But anyway, I, I hope this one can kind of wrestle with those with those really good works he's yeah. done. Uh, other side of the wind, I, I have no damn idea what to make of that. <laughs> well, so, only that it's been this, you know, this wonderful oddity that never quite got finished the first time. So you can't call it a reconstruction. It was never a construction, you know. It's just, it's Wells basically satirizing the the youth movement and the new Hollywood counterculture that is basically taking all the attention away from guys like him at the time in the late 60s, early 70s. It's also him trying to play ball in that in that way and it, it is a crazy chaotic mess and i am intrigued to see it one more time so to your point michael about how you choose to approach these film festivals do you go for the movies like the ones i mentioned the ones you've been hearing all the buzz about at other film fests the ones maybe you're dying most to see or do you wait knowing that they're going to come to a theater more than likely at some point over the next few months and do you go for stuff that's a little off the beaten path stuff that you can only see at a festival yeah to the degree i'm going as a civilian which is limited i like to take a more of a chance but i approach these this sort of whirlwind you know two city festival tour i just did with venice and toronto which i look i was very fortunate to be able to do it with a kind of a practical mission which is like see a dozen or 15 titles that are going to be at the Chicago Festival and for once feel like you're a little bit on top of it when Mm -hmm. it comes around because, you know, this thing is a steamroller, as we all know. It's coming at us with 120, 130 titles. Yes. And you want to be a little bit, a little bit ready for some of it. So it's nice to be able to recommend kind of cold, you know, a good eight or ten right away. Yeah, that would be nice. And we... (laughs) May experience that someday, Michael. But I did want to find five movies that maybe, if they're not completely off the beaten path, they are somewhere in the middle between the other films that we've highlighted so far. And one of them is a film that's screening in conjunction with The Other Side of the Wind, the Oscar-winning director of 20 Feet from Stardom, that documentary, and also the very good Mr. Rogers documentary from this year, Morgan Neville, has made a movie that is the making of Wells's The Other Side of the Wind. So it basically tells the last 15 years of his life when he was struggling to make a Hollywood comeback. Which I haven't seen, and I really do think it's going to be kind of a necessary companion piece because this film is is vexing as hell and challenging and really a slippery slope that you can either enjoy or not. But yeah. uh, it's no, Neville's, look, think of Neville. He's one of the only guys in documentary right now who's actually uh, a moneymaker. <laughs> you know, that Fred Rogers doc was just, you know, it wasn't just popular. It was really good. It was. You know? And it was just sort of exactly what the culture needed, you know, was mm. a reminder that, you know, we can have people like this in the culture and not be embarrassed by it. Sure. My number four choice here for the Under the Radar SIF movies is another documentary about a filmmaker, William Friedkin, Chicago filmmaker, originally William Friedkin, being honored at the festival in person. So he will be here, and there is a new film called Friedkin Uncut that dives into his career from The French Connection in 72 up to Killer Joe in 2011 and everything else along the way. I've interviewed William Friedkin on a Chicago stage before. You've talked to Billy? Oh, it's an experience. It's a trip. (laughs) It is a trip. Why? Why? I keep hearing that. I got asked to moderate a Q&A for him when his biography came out. It was at one of the Chicago Public Libraries. And he is one of those guys who has so many great stories to tell and is a force of nature. You know who he's kind of like, actually, in some ways? He's a lot like a Robin Williams who sits Mm. down next to you and you throw a question at him. 
And he may answer that question or he may decide to go in a completely different direction. And right. at various points, he got up with his microphone, just walked around the stage, told stories. I was wow. superfluous. I mean, I'm used to that, but I was truly just baggage you turned for this Q&A. Then... All I had to do was turn him on, give him prompts here and there, and Friedkin ran with it. And what's funny, unfortunately, it's not funny. I was hoping that I'd be able to use that Q&A on a show because, I mean, he is a font of interesting tales and insights. And for some reason, this is classic Friedkin, right? They came to him before the show and said, in order for this Q&A to be played on television, it was going to be on like Chicago Public Access. And also I was hoping to play it on the show. They had a contract for him to sign, like a boilerplate contract that just said, yeah, I'm okay with this Q&A being filmed. Wouldn't do it. No, he wouldn't do it. Made a big stink about it. Said, I'll have my guy look at it, then never signed it. And I've never been able to play it. I have a copy of it, but I can't play it for anybody. I, I will point out one thing about William Friedkin. They also said, hey, if you wanted to show any movie in the festival as, and then talk about it in sort of a masterclass way. What do you pick? The Bandwagon, directed by Vincent uh, Benelli. Oh, that's tied to his appearance. Yes, okay. a film that I think I was a little more, you know, it's appreciative okay. yeah. of the, the, the greatness yeah. of it uh, than you guys. Yes. Let's move on. Might we hear more about The Bandwagon on the show? <laughs> no, no, okay. I'm just going to shut up. Okay. <laughs> My number three, at Eternity's Gate, this is Julian Schnabel, who did Before Night Falls and Basquiat and The Diving Bell and The Butterfly, another Van Gogh movie after Loving Speaking Vincent. Of Manelli, and another kind of, yeah, experimental film here. Willem Dafoe is playing Vincent Van Gogh. And as I read it in front of me, it's not a biography. They're just taking scenes based on his letters and sort of what we all believe to be true about his life and some of the myths of his life and depicting it on screen, which with Schnabel and Van Gogh as a subject and Defoe playing Van Gogh, I'm in. Yeah, it's it's good. I, I, I need to see it again to really know what I thought of it, but it, it it's actually more straightforward than I think it's making out to be. Hmm. It, it's, it's not quite the... Uh, fragmented, sort of impressionistic portrait of this of this man's you know last few rough years, mm-hmm. but it's uh, uh, it's very strong and and um, you know I keep waiting maybe maybe foolishly and, and maybe unfair to him I keep waiting for a film of his that'll have the impact on me that the diving bell and the butterfly had, which was really something else. And yes, you know this this may be his second best film, but uh, I need to see it again. Like like any film festival experience, you know, you see a film a month later or whatever. It's really to see it the first time, not the second time. Sure. Yeah. What about Wildlife? Carrie Mulligan, Jake Gyllenhaal, two of my favorite it. actors. I haven't seen it. Working today in a film adapted from the Richard Ford novel about a nuclear family in the 1960s. Carrie Mulligan will be here at the festival, so that is a treat to look forward to. Is that and uh, Paul, Paul Dano yeah. making his, I think, debut as a director? I believe, I believe so. so. Well, he's got a good cast there to start off with. And then my number one, I put it here because I really am that curious about the film, and I would love to be able to devote the time to it. I think it's longer than Lawrence of Arabia, so that's probably not going to happen. But the Oscar-winning director of No End in Sight, Inside Job, Charles Ferguson, making a Watergate documentary. Right. And for some reason, I never tire of Watergate lore. 
Is it just to take your mind off everything we should be paying attention to now? Yeah, or? exactly. I don't think it's going to do that somehow. No, no but you know what? I, I, that's a good point. And I, I haven't seen that. I really do look forward to that because clearly Watergate has a, an awful lot to say to us now about kind of what we should be paying attention to and are inundated with. But really, I don't know if we've really honestly dissected the half of it. And I hope Charles Ferguson in five or ten years gets on it. So we will link to... More information about the Chicago Film Festival and its lineup in our show notes at filmspotting.net. We will also provide a list of all the movies we recommended or are among our most anticipated if you want to revisit those in our show notes at filmspotting.net. When we come back, it's the real reason we asked Michael to join us for this show to get to hear his favorite movie duets. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. Okay, roll them. What's up, Doc? What's cooking? What's up, Doc? Oh, you're looking for bugs, bunny bunting. Duck is gonna hunting just to get a rabbit skin, but now the rabbit's gonna get. What's up, Doc? What's cooking? Hey, look out! Stop! You're gonna hurt someone with that old shotgun. Hey, what's up, Doc? We really mean it. You're listening to Film Spotting, and there you were listening to Meet Me in St. Louis, Mary Astor and Leon Ames in Vincent Minnelli's film, a choice I think that was made by our producer for our special guest here on the show for this top five movie duets, Michael Phillips. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Yeah, you love that film. You love Minnelli. Are we going to get to any Minnelli talk no, here? No, 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 tangentially. But 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 no, I've, I've already had my say on the Minnelli front okay. with you guys. It, 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 it absolutely you said fell, your on, piece. fell on deaf ears. That's fine. No, you're, uh, you're thinking of the Marx Brothers. The Mar- we like Minnelli. We like Minnelli. <laughs> no, I That's know true. you. Uh, someday you'll like me. I don't know. You'll wake up you know, just before you die. You <laughs> yeah, know, you, you, episode ding, 1400. You know, my actually, my yeah, life's regret. Yeah, my horse feathers is better than the night at the opera. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Michael, before we get into our top five, tying it, of course, with our review of A Star is Born, which is movie duets, wanted to take a second to get your take on A Star is Born, the new film, the new adaptation that Bradley Cooper co-wrote and directed, of course, co-stars in with Lady Gaga. What did you think? Very much look forward to hearing what you guys had to say. I think we all felt roughly the same uh, about you know it being you know pretty good. And uh, some yeah. people adore it. Uh, I work with people who... Uh, really can't come to work. They were so moved by it. Um, and uh, other people, you know, really think it's got, is, it's as good as any of them out there. I, what, what, you, what can you say in general? It, it works in a way that the the worst one, the worst version with Streisand and Christopherson just, just plain is difficult to get through mm-hmm. these days. But, you know, Cooper did a very smart thing about about just sort of stripping everything out of the story that didn't uh, stick right to the, the the simplest, most direct, 
um, archetypes that, that have guided the story since, you know, What Price Hollywood, the unofficial first version back in 1932. Very good film. And uh, yeah, it's all good. And, and and so was the 37 with Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. So was the Judy Garland, James Mason in 54. And and this one's pretty good too. There's something about this story. And I, I'd like to know what you guys think before I give you my little 10 cents. Is Why is that even a lousy film version of this story finds an audience? Mm. Why? Why? Why is it? Josh, why don't you take that? No, I think you're right when you that's how people are responding to it is very viscerally and I don't mean to say it's it's a simplistic film, but it's a very fundamental film in the sort of responses it's going for. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it's that's able a good to hit those authentically and we did talk about that mm-hmm. in our review, the elements that did ring true for us then you're just going to fall head over heels for it. And I wish I fell that far. I, yeah. I liked it as well. And But I'm I'm envious of the people yeah, who have if, really gone crazy for it. If performed well and calibrated the right way, then you're going to be along for that journey with these characters. They're discovering their love and as they're discovering their talent. And that rise, I think, can be really exhilarating. And it is here for the most part. I think the fall in that third act isn't as engaging at all as what we get leading up to it. But the first half of this film is... Pretty thrilling. Yeah, and I think Cooper is a. He figured out how to film the performance mm-hmm. footage nicely, and and actually gives it some breathing room. And it's not a lot of nervous sort of overcompensating cutting, you know, to kind of jazz it up or anything. It's it just it makes it makes kind of good rhythmic sense to treat it that way. I think in general people are going to respond to it because, you know, he is a better singer and performer than people are probably expecting, and she's a better actress, although she, you know, they both have the chops to do it. You know, and that's, yes. you know, they got the casting right. That's basically what you can say from the beginning, but I think there's something about it. I haven't put my finger on it yet, but there's something about the way Cooper has tilted the story just slightly toward his character rather than hers in terms of getting a little more of the audience sympathy, a tiny bit more of the screen time. Even in yes. big moments when she's performing, you got to cut away to montages <laughs> uh, yeah. that, that feature him prominently. And, yep. you know, there's just a little bit of the, um, you know, the big footing going on there. I yeah, think that's, that's exactly what I felt as well. We are in agreement, it seems, on A Star is Born. Let's see how much crossover we have as we get to our top five. A Star is Born is a film that features a great duet, at least one, The Shallow, the song where Lady Gaga's character does come out onto the stage for the first time with Bradley Cooper and performs a song that she essentially co-wrote, that she was definitely the inspiration for. And we're going to start with you, Michael. Any special approach to this list, or was it really just a matter of going through some of your favorite musicals and your favorite performances? Man, this was hard. I mean, didn't you find this hard? Incredibly, yes. <laughs> incredible. I mean, I, I think, I think, if it was a da- if it was dance duets, I would have given you a twenty in ten minutes. Mm. And and this one, I struggled for a while, and then and then the then the kind of, you know, the memories open up, and you start checking the clips, and you think, okay, well, yeah, no, that's that's yeah, that was that's better than I remember, and all that. Uh, what my definition of duet doesn't necessarily mean operatic, you know, fifty fifty. Uh, male, female, or two male, two men, or two women. I, I, it's not like that. I had a much more, <laughs> I think, forgiving, flexible definition to do it. As long as two people Good. sing I did too. in the same three <laughs> minutes, uh, you know, if there's one other voice heard, then uh, and that's 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 uh, I defined it that way, especially to kind of get one particular favorite of mine snuck in there. We'll, we'll reveal that in a bit. Uh, that's that's my thing. It's not. 
it's not necessarily the the dictionary classical definition of what duets are, but um, as long as you have two voices sharing the same moment or mm. sentiment or song, then then that, that's my definition. Okay, your number five. Uh, my number five is for me and my gal, which is not a well known movie, but it's Gene Kelly's screen debut with Judy Garland, and Busby Berkeley directed it, and it's you know not a not a big MGM picture, but it's a, a wonderful. A reminder of when you get the right two people together like Garland and Kelly really were uh, when they were also both sort of she was already a star and he was a Broadway star enough to get you know to get hired by MGM but they just are, are so magically right together and the title tune is just charming, serious, honest-to-God harmony. So this is a real duet. And then, of course, it becomes a dance duet where you realize these are two beautifully matched dance talents, too. And people don't know this movie very well. It's set in World War One. He plays a draft dodger, which is very interesting as to kind of redeem himself. And it's World War II propaganda, but it's set in World War One, And it's a romantic triangle with George Murphy as the other point of the triangle and you know it's the material's okay at best but that that title duet is just beautiful mainly because it reminds you what um, the right kind of triple threat musical stars could do when they got them when they got together the bells are ringing for me and my gal the birds are singing for me and my gal Everybody's been going to a wedding they're going, and for weeks they've been sewing. They've been sewing something old and something new, so something that is blue, so they can make a true so for my gal. They're congregating for me and my gal. We did share our clips in advance, we should probably say, just so we had a chance, especially for the scenes maybe some of us weren't familiar with, to look at them. And what struck me about this, first of all, I've mostly seen Gene Kelly's stuff when he was older, mm-hmm. so how young he looked here. Right. Uh, but 1942. Also, yeah. Judy Garland is, you know, having just watched her A Star is Born, so incredibly relaxed in this scene and sort of free, which sometimes there's a tightness, I think, to some of uh, at least... Star is born being fresh in my mind. Some of the numbers there. And here, maybe it's paired with him and how, what they create together, but really enjoyed seeing them have that sort Good. of free-flowing yeah. sense of relaxation. Well, they both, had, they both had something to prove in a way. You know, mm. they were still, you know, I mean, in 12 years in Judy Garland's life was like 55 in somebody hmm. else's just because of them, because between the chemical <laughs> yeah. intake and, and just every demon coming at her. And I mean, I, you know, it was a tough life. And, uh, and, and you don't get a whiff of that in this film, yeah. So this was incredibly hard. And I think for me, it's because there were so many directions you could go with it. As you, you mentioned, Michael, I'm trying to define it. You could go just romantic, trying to keep it in line with The Star is Born, animated, all the animated musicals that have duets, non-musical films even that are more musical dramas that have them. I went with a mix of everything. So I kind of sure. tried to throw a lot of that in. And unlike you, Michael, uh, with this broader definition of a duet, for my number five, I'm extremely literal. It's Let's duet from Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. This is the John C. Riley biopic spoof. It's a spoof of musical biopics in general, but specifically Johnny Cash, Walk the Walk the Line film, uh, I think is its main target here. So in this number, 
to Riley's cache is Jenna Fisher's June Carter cache, essentially. The character is named Darlene Madison, a church-going backup singer for whom Dewey Cox develops an illicit longing. Let's Duet is, it is a lovely lolling duet, but it's also a series of crass double entendres about sexual frustration. Yes, it's a bit smutty. I found it a bit naughty, personally. (laughs) In my dreams you're blowing me that's one of my favorite things to do you and I could go down in history that's what I'm praying to do with you let's do it Jenna Fisher, very funny in the film, but I should note it's Angela Correa doing the singing alongside Riley there. Now, in our Sisters Brothers review, I talked about the inherent goodness, this sense of sincerity that so many John C. Riley characters have. And I think that's key to making the comedy work here. It's only going to be funny if you believe that Dewey Cox really desperately wants to walk the straight and narrow and not give in to his desires. So one of my just all-time favorite songs is Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash is Jackson. Hmm. And I think Let's Duet has just a a little fun lampooning that here, at least the interplay. And so it earns my number five spot. Yeah, so maybe appropriate for this 700th episode, longtime listeners may remember that the first musician we ever featured on the show, back before we really had any clearance to play anything, so I had to go to albums where I knew I could get an artist to sign off on it. We used to play this great kind of folk Rock artist Dan Byrne all the time. Love him. Used to see him in concert all the time. He wrote a good chunk of the music. Did he really? Walk wow. Nice. Really? Really? Yeah. It's good Marshall music. Marshall Crenshaw, too, and others, but Dan Byrne wrote a bunch of it. Yeah. It's it great is. in the film. It's good. I remember how hard I laughed at the Beatles scene in Walk Hard. <laughs> yes. I think that's my favorite scene in the movie, those impressions there. Well, we're going to go from Gene Kelly and Judy Garland that Michael just starts us off with. A bang with yeah. high class, some class. really classy, classy, pick. Pick. and then Josh he, he immediately brings us down it. a little bit. I love it. I'm gonna go to the eternal duo of Andy Samberg as Connor for real. <laughs> oh no, with Pink as Pink in a riff on celebrity crossover duets in the really funny movie from a few years ago. Pop star never stop, never stopping. <laughs> the song is the duet is equal rights in parentheses, not gay. And it starts off with Connor making – he says it's a political statement he's going to make on this album, but he is protesting too much right from the beginning. He says, discrimination, it ain't right. I'm not gay, but if I was – and he goes on like that. I'm not gay, but if I were, it's not fair. I'm not gay. Really wants to make it clear he's not gay. It goes from there into a full-on declaration of his virility and his straightness. Not gay, not gay. Lying in bed next to ten beautiful girls all straight. And while I made love to every one of them, I was thinking about the world, Hot Wings. True love trumps all predator. Flying kicks, not gay. Big watch, not gay. Missionary, one love. Gym socks, none. Chuck a not gay. Light a fluid HD. Ninja world, peace, four-wheel drive. Gay marriage, love beef. Free love, golf club, two guys. Not gay. Rainbow muff dive. Harvey milk, champagne, not gay. Drum solo, courtside seat, safe sex. One arm push-ups, Leonard Skinner. I'm not gay. I'm not gay. Pink gives the song some social credibility with her actual activism in real life. And she, of course, gives the song that anthemic chorus, but it's all subverted by Connor's incredibly fragile sense of masculinity. It's 
a parody of Macklemore's Same Love. There's a Lady Gaga reference in there, too, though, in the chorus that Pink sings, where she sings I Was Born This Way, referencing that song from Gaga. The tag at the end of it, though, might be the funniest part of the whole song. Ringo Starr. Speaking of the Beatles. Yeah, speaking of the Beatles, Ringo Starr, (laughs) the actual Ringo Starr, pops up at the end as a talking head, and he says... He's writing the song for gay marriage like it's not allowed. It's allowed now. <laughs> Which somehow I did kind of forget watching right. the song. It's a great statement. He's making this grand political statement, except it doesn't really need to be made <laughs> in a lot of ways. And then he's going about it so terribly, too. But I think that was my favorite joke song in that entire film in a movie that is hilarious. So equal rights, not gay. My number five duet. All right. The crass comedy out of the way. Adam and I will get will be a little more respectful. Yes, moving not forward. the comedy necessarily out of the way, but the, the crass, crass comedy. Unless Michael's going to bring us down. No, I might. I'm trying to think. Yeah, a little bit in the runners up, but uh, my, my list is classy. Okay, so yeah. let's get another classy pick at number four. Number four is when your mind's made up from once. I know somebody else has a once pick here, but uh, this is mine. And like the song "The Shallows" in "The Stars Born," this is a this is a performance number that begins with somebody, in this case two somebodies, uh, Glenn Hansard and Mark Glova, uh, in the studio recording their first time together, I believe, with the band. And just to see if they work well together. They begin this song as nobodies, and they, they by the end of it, the the sound engineer knows that they have it. And that's exactly the arc that is that audiences adore. You know, they love seeing this play out in the space of three or four minutes. It happens with Cooper and Lady Gaga and that number in the Star is Born where you know she gets dragged out on the stage reluctant and then of course three and a half minutes later, a star is born. Yes. And uh, you know, it's it's irresistible in that way. It's also this is an unusually uh, authentic, I'd say, uh, and and really, really convincing moment of kind of musical collaboration and the, just the way that he works on guitar and she works on piano and the voices blend and everything works. You know, once is an experience that I don't go back and try to recapture, frankly, because the film is, if you haven't seen it, it's the Irish film from 2006. That, you know, it's a very small and kind of, I don't want to call it fragile, but it's a very particular kind of um, once in a once in a generation sort of little miracle I think mm. and, and I, you know I saw it at Sundance I it was a holding my breath by the end it's like please don't blow it please don't blow it please don't blow it. you know and, and they didn't blow it the whole thing is yeah. great and it was my favorite film that year yeah so, it was 2007 yeah. I think though because that was an incredible year I think I had it as my number seven movie of the year and I adored that film but that's how good 07 was wow yeah, but anyway, that, the number of seeing this number again is the closest I've come to revisiting that film in many years. And yeah, I think with some films you really love, you want to stay, you don't want to overindulge it. You don't want to necessarily wear that love down by just sort of re, re You had that experience yeah, with it. Yeah, but it was great to see just how well that, that scene still played. And for all the best, most honest reasons, the talent is so much right there on the screen and it's not forced or pushed and it just, just works beautifully. Mm-hmm. So, you ever want something? Your 
the little bit with the sound engineer is so great too. His his dawning awareness, him being our surrogate, right? As he's yeah, that he's at, that, love, that they're actually good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that. All right, my number four. Yes, things are going to get classy now. To help us do that, we have a voicemail from Henrik from Yalding, Kent, UK. Happy seven hundredth episode, Adam and Josh. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. I want to submit for your approval for uh, this duet from a film, the song Well Did You Ever, from High Society, the 1956 musical remake of The Philadelphia Story, with Bing Crosby as C.K. Dexter Haven, and Frank Sinatra as Mike, and Grace Kelly as Tracy Lord. Did we need an update of Philadelphia Story? Probably not. Did we need a musical version of it? Yeah. All right, go on then. I do love this song. It's bubbly. It's funny. It's catty. It's it's about the chattering classes. It's about the upper class, you know, the privileged class enjoying their privileges and the goofy things they talk about at these parties. And it's tuneful. It's funny. And it's bringing together Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby, who in their own eras were the champions of uh, the music industry. And there's a wonderful meta moment where uh, Frank Sinatra makes fun of uh, Bing Crosby's crooning. And it is just a delightful, delightful song. And uh, they really go at it with relish and gusto. We sing, we sing so rare, like old like don't dig that kind of crooning, chum. You must be one of the newer fellas. Have you heard it's in the stars? Thanks very much. Take July, care. We collide with Mars. Well, did you ever? What a swell party, a swell party, a swell again, elegant party. Thank you, Henrik. My pick is Well Did You Ever from High Society. So for years now, the first piece of Christmas music we play in our house is Happy Holidays with Frank and Bing. I think that and the Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack, that's what we usually put the tree up to. So I was grateful to Henrik when he reminded me of this Cole Porter number. For me, it's all about that interplay, right, between Crosby and Sinatra, the precise interruptions and additions that you know must have been painstakingly timed and rehearsed, but it just comes across as the natural chemistry of two very old friends who can make casual conversation sound like freeform jazz. Listening to Well Did You Ever Again, I think it makes me want to play that Frank and Bing Christmas album tonight when I get home, but <laughs> might be a little bit early. We, the rule in our house, after Thanksgiving. So I'm going to have to wait for a little okay. bit. Okay, that's a good rule. The only Christmas music allowed at our house is Elvis Christmas. Not a bad choice, but is it just on we repeat put the tree for like to. a month? Really? Yeah, the album, each song, I think there's only like eight songs on it, and each one's two and a half minutes long. So it takes us a while to get all those ornaments up. We end yeah. up listening to it about 17 times. <laughs> But Sounds great. When you have a wife who was born in Tupelo, mm-hmm. the birthplace of Elvis, okay, there's a connection there. there what you wow. Do? Yeah. Okay. My number four is from the movie A Mighty Wind from Christopher Guest, A Kiss at the End of the Rainbow, Mitch and Mickey. I know, Josh, that you've talked about this song at least once on the show before. I thought it might have come up in our top five mockumentary moments. If it did, it, it was, was just an honorable, an honorable mention. mention. Yeah. It was actually— So wonderful. It was actually our top five— 
movie bands, I think. And you had Mitch and Mickey on there oh, where you talked about the song. <laughs> but if you have been just keeping this in the penalty box because of that, it's been a long time. That was yeah. like four or five years ago. This is ago. an honorable mention for me. Okay. It might be my number I had a six. feeling it would be. But Eugene Levy plays Mitch. Catherine O'Hara plays Mickey. We hear the backstory of their long relationship, a tumultuous relationship. They released, I think, seven albums together, had a dramatic breakup. And... Mickey, Catherine O'Hara, moved on from it, got married to another guy, seems to be happy. Mitch, meanwhile, had a breakdown and has never really gotten over that breakup. And there's a lot of suspense here at the end of the movie, actually. The climax of the film is this concert that's being put on, guests owed to these folk groups from the 60s primarily. And we see them all perform. It's just a beautiful song to begin with, with two beautiful voices singing it in unison. But beyond just how the show is going to go off and how is everyone going to sound, this song really gives the movie, my favorite word, stakes, because it's all building to whether or not they will be able to make that connection in their music that they used to have and whether they will literally connect, will they kiss at the end of the song, which is apparently what they always did when they performed it. And I love the way Guest heightens the stakes by showing all the other performers getting invested in that moment. We see, I think, the Folksman trio, which Guest is a part of, with his Spinal Tap brethren, Harry Shearer and Michael McKean, and they actually are listening to it on the speaker, and they kind of react to it. Oh, I know this one. It's a pretty song. And then Parker Posey is part of another group, I think the New Main Street Singers, and she listens and then goes up on stage to watch everybody, all the other performers. They've all been downstairs. Now they go on stage to watch this performance and to see whether or not they will kiss. And when Catherine O'Hara as Mickey kind of seems to cry a little bit at the midpoint of the song and Mitch is looking on adoringly and then Parker Posey starts crying. You've got these groups where they're kind of cynical at this point and they're pretty competitive, but it brings everybody together in this moment. And I do think it's a duet that shows how a song, even for the performers involved, can mean different things to different people and can have more power for different people because they couldn't be more connected emotionally when they're performing the song, when they're in harmony together. And they are, as I said, connected when their lips touch. But there's still this mountain of space, I think, between them. We hear later that Mitch is kind of back into his mode of thinking about Mickey and he's truly never gotten over her. Maybe that kiss meant something more to him than it did to her. So no matter how real it is, no matter how real that performance is and how much intention and feeling went into it, it doesn't necessarily change how she's experiencing that moment. But at the same time, she's going through something quite profound. And we see that in Catherine O'Hara's performance. Yeah, you mentioned the suspense and that's it, right? There's a narrative beyond the song itself. I think many of the scenes we're probably going to be talking about, it's all about the song and and getting across what the song wants to get across. And this does that as well, but there's this whole additional layer of narrative behind it. That makes it so beautiful. Your kiss, there's a kiss at the end of the rainbow. You're number three. Number three. Duet. Okay, I'm, I'm, I bent the rules on this one. This is the Good. one that it really, it really is a duet, uh, just barely. It's uh, this is uh, called Cassard's story, Receipt de Cassard from the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and it's um, acted by 
two people who actually didn't sing it. The singers are Georges Blenes and Christiane Legrand, who's the sister of the composer, Michelle Legrand. Anyway, I, I, I'm pretty much in the bag for Umbrellas of Cherbourg anyway, but this is my favorite thing in it. And thank God the mother of the Catherine Deneuve character comes in right at the end of the song to qualify it barely as a duet. <laughs> it's so can, tight. It's can, tight, I, Michael. It's tight, I know, but I, I just adore it. And uh, and I hope we can hear a little bit of it because it's just, it's uh, it, to me, it's the most gorgeous recitative I've heard outside the world of opera. And it's, it's just this wonderful moment where this suitor um, comes in and uh, presents himself uh, to uh, the pregnant daughter of this woman, and saying, "You know, I look my my own love life uh, is is not worked out either." And I remember once upon, and then he remembers what happened in the Demi film Lola <laughs> to, to the same character, and it's this extended sort of memory where he's just thinking about what didn't work out for him, and now he's presenting himself with, "Well, here's here's my offer. I, I'd love to take." You know, your daughter is my wife, and, you know, we'll go from there. But it's just, this music is, you know, the orchestration is so subtle and gorgeous, and it's just, uh, you know, I'm not even really that much of a Michel Legrand fan, but this music uh, really puts it over for me. Demain, je repars à Amsterdam pour trois mois. À mon retour, Geneviève me donnera elle-même sa réponse. Je ne sais que vous Mais ne me dites rien, Geneviève décidera elle-même. Bonsoir, madame. Bonsoir, monsieur Cassand. Josh, usually you're playing traffic cop in these top fives. You're yelling at me for jaywalking if I'm breaking <laughs> the rules. But I'm guessing since it's Cherbourg that Michael's talking about, you're going to let it stand. Cur- what are your top ten favorite films? on that top ten of all time list. Oh. And... I only have it as an honorable mention. Wow. Not because of that. I wasn't being a stickler for that rule, Michael. Yeah. I'll allow that. I'll allow that right. pick. For me, it's the it's the dubbing, which I don't hold against the film overall, like as an experience for that film, but but just this. And I know Jenna Fisher was dubbed in my number five pick. Yeah, there but you the, go. One, the number I thought about though was uh, "I Will Wait for You." Yeah, that's that's a true honest to god yeah, duet for well, sure. It is, and, but and I don't like that song as much as this song. Uh, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Uh, but it is like. It's those voices. It's all about those voices. And uh, again, I don't hold it against the film in general, but it did. It, that was enough of a reason for me to keep my beloved umbrellas. On well, all right, hold honorable on. Okay, but here, if you interpret it this way, though, this guy is doing a duet long before the woman comes in for two single vocal lines at the end of the song. <laughs> Essentially, this is a duet, a guy singing with wallpaper. I mean, that wallpaper in that right. in that film, and then in that that particular scene is so much of a partner, a scene partner, and. Um, you know, in the other part of the song, he's singing a duet with this sort of visual montage flashback where he's just walking around, you know, corridors in his memory, empty, empty parts of the film yeah. uh, Lola from earlier. So anyway, it's, it's wonderful. It's a metaphoric duet. That's what I'm saying. There you go. There you go. All right. Number three. Well, duets are a staple of the Disney musical. So I knew I wanted at least one of those on my list. Most people on social media, they suggested A Whole New World from Aladdin. No, no. (laughs) I went with a song I like better uh, from a movie. I like better. Elton John's Can You Feel the Love Tonight from The Lion King. Oh, I don't no, know. No, no. You don't like that one either, no, Michael? No, no, no. no. That's oh, kind of how I felt when I saw no, it. Oh, you guys. I am eager no, to hear what you have to say on. about it. No. Let's listen to it. Do we have to? So many things to tell her, but how to make her see the truth about my past? Impossible. 
She'd turn away from me. He's holding back, he's hiding. But what I can't decide. Why won't he be the king I know he is? The king I see inside. You feel the love oh, all right. <laughs> That's wow, it worked. Right. it worked on Michael. I, he's I'm, in tears now. No, Are you happy, I Josh? I think he's faking. Oh, okay. And All you right, two are heartless, and I'm... Wow, feel terrible now. Come on, it has everything you want from a romantic I've Disney got a duet. Better, huh? I've got a better Disney duet I'll get to yeah, in the honorable I know, mentions. I know. How about the voices here, though? Crystal Edwards and Joseph Williams, really strong, cute animal flirting. Come on, Michael. They got paid. They it's got an, paid for the Disney... session. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying <laughs> they shouldn't have got paid. This <laughs> is a Disney tradition all the way back to Lady and the Tramp, and I love this entry into it. I'm sorry. Also, okay, here's here's a reason maybe you'll buy. I like the prologue and the epilogue it has, so that it includes Timon and Pumbaa and the way they cleverly deflate. They're doing what you guys are doing here, right? They're kind of pulling their noses Natter- up, nattering away. Here, yeah. yeah, here we go. Who we know what this means? We get another one of these. So they're playing your part, and I like that sort of meta element to it. I wasn't going to pick. Could have picked Hakuna Matata. That's a duet too. But <laughs> that would have been I'm, worse. I'm just waiting here. I'm just going to keep listing these songs to see you guys. I mean, people like these. at them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like. All right. All I right. like. How can you feel the love tonight works as two duets in one, and it has that little bit of snarkiness to it as well, which I did not expect you two to supply in such great amounts. I don't like, so disappointed. I'm not really, I, mean, I don't like being compared to either a warthog or a meerkat. I, I, <laughs> I, if I'm going to be animated, I want to be a mighty steed. <laughs> I'll remember that. I, I want to be in a film called The Mighty Steed. Maybe there will be a film spotting movie and we'll get to voice something <laughs> other than ourselves and we know what Michael will play in that. Okay, I'm going to try to get us back on track here with a song that's actually another folk song. And it comes from one of my favorite films of the last 10 years from the Coen brothers, Inside Lewin Davis, our poll winner in our film spotting poll question about best musical something or other that isn't a biopic. Even though this one, even in a way, supposedly Mm. it's based on Dave Van Ronk and that character. So you might be able to exclude it if you're going to be a stickler there. Fare thee well, Dink Song, which is this classic American folk song. This one, Michael, like your choice, not a conventional duet. I'm talking about the scene. <laughs> she comes in right at the end. Yeah, right at the end. Yeah, it's yeah. the scene at the dinner table fairly early in the film when he is having dinner with the Gorefinds. It's not only a case where she comes in just at the end, the whole duet is almost over as quickly as it begins because this is that song, like duets we've talked about, it should be about connection and you're singing with or to another person. This is, I guess, the unrequited or the unwanted duet. Lewin already we see has no interest in performing Oscar Isaac. So good. Mrs. Gorefine says she thought that singing was a joyous expression of the soul. Everything about Lewin's face and his demeanor suggests playing is at best a vocation for him. At worst, it's a curse. It really is all he can do, all he can do well, but they are sitting there after dinner and he reluctantly agrees to sing fairly well. This is a song that he had recorded originally with his partner who has passed away named Mike. And yes, Michael, just at the very end of singing fairly well, Mrs. Gorfine starts singing Mike's harmony. Oh, honey. What are you doing? What? What what is that? What are you doing? Well, it's Mike's part. Don't do that. It's Mike's part. I know what it is. Don't do that. 
Isaac, so good as a singer and a performer in this movie, obviously a tremendously talented actor. The way he says, what is that? What are you doing? He's so incredulous and condescending, but not really in a pretentious way, just in an exhausted way in that moment. And the line that gets me every time is after she says, it's Mike's part. He says, don't do that. I know what it is. Don't do that. The way he delivers that line, it's so wounded. And I think you learn so much about Lewin from this exchange. He's this character who wears his cynicism and his disappointment like it's a suit of armor. But he's clearly still grieving for this partner, and he's far from over it. I know there are some theories that the Gorfines might be Mike's parents. There's a lot of different readings if you Google it. But the movie doesn't really suggest that, except at how emotional they get when— he performs that song fairly well, also making this list because it's just a great, great song. And it's performed wonderfully by Isaac and Marcus Mumford on the soundtrack. We do hear part of that recording in the movie. There's a part, I think, where Lewin gets out that album with the two of them. And we hear part of that song without a song this good and a performance this good and Isaac singing and playing. I think that kind of mythical nature of Lewin's struggle that the Coen brothers are trying to get at wouldn't be expressed at all, the sense that he's been touched by God, and yet he can barely get by. He just can't even survive, really, on the streets without sleeping on couches and having meals at places like the Gorefines. And I think the song, in a way, because of that duo, because of Mike's death, it haunts the whole movie. In some ways, that, that duet, it's kind of a metaphor for the larger film. It's the ghost that's hanging over him. And actually, not for nothing, the song Fairly Well, if you look at the lyrics, is about a partner who is no longer present when the other needs them the most. It's a male-female situation there and talking about a lover who has gone away. But I think, obviously, that song not chosen by accident. Well, there's a choice there, too, a, a moment where that could have gone for laughs, right? When she's when she comes in and is singing, either mm-hmm. both in her performance, the way she sings and the way he responds, and instead of a piece with this entire melancholy film, everything from the cinematography capturing that sort of sensibility, the the wise choice to instead play for the hurt and Isaac to be able to communicate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful. Michael, you're number two. Number two. Uh, th- this is this is a, a, a love song between two people who really uh, clearly love each other's performers. Laurel and Hardy doing the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia in one of their best features, uh, Way Out West from 1937. Now, I'm, I used to be a big comedy nerd as a kid, and I'm a, you know, I'm a modified comedy nerd as an adult, but I, seeing this number again really reminded me how how lovely uh, it is in the in the in the midst of all the slapstick because it's just it's, it's a breather from everything around it it's a change of pace it's a reminder that Laurel and Hardy came out of vaudeville and uh, you know Oliver Hardy used to had a seriously good bar- baritone and Laurel had a decent voice and it's just it's just a great honest to god duet you know this is not one of these faux duets i've snuck in there with Cherbourg it's uh it's it's like the soft shoe number they do early Earlier in the film, uh, that's actually more famous and probably the most famous thing from that film. But but uh, I just love the interlude, and when it goes for the laughs at the end, there are actually two really good laughs in it. And I don't want to spoil it, but uh, it's it's worth listening to a little bit of it. In the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, on the trail of the lonesome pine. In the pale moonshine, a heart's entwine, where she carved her name, and I carved mine, or June, or June, just like the mountains of blue, like the pine, I am lonesome for you. 
That's it, Laurel and Hardy, Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. What did you guys think? Was it first time for you? It was. Yeah, me too. I'm almost completely unfamiliar with Laurel and Hardy, so didn't know what to expect, and I was taken aback at how beautiful this was. Charming as hell. Charming as hell. And it does end very funnily. So. Yeah, yeah. And also, I, I picked it also because we have this biopic, No Idea If It's Any Good, with John C. Riley coming out as, Laura, as Oliver Hardy and Steve Coogan playing Laurel kind of later That's in right. their careers, 1947, when they went on a, a kind of a rocky UK tour as their film career was uh, just about near the end. And, uh, you know, I have no idea if Stan and Ollie, this biopic coming out, is any good, but I know they recreate some scenes from the same film. So we'll really? see. We'll see. It's a, maybe we're having a mini Laurel and Hardy yeah. renaissance. Sounds great. All right. I need to win you back, Michael, and okay. I'm, I'm hoping I can do it with my number two number pick two. here. When the Midnight Choo Choo leaves for Alabama from Easter Parade. Yeah. Is that all right? We do yeah, a little I'm good. better here? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Garland, Fred Astaire. So, yeah. like Irving Berlin. Like A Star is Born, Easter Parade is something of a Pygmalion plot. You've got another older accomplished man discovering and falling in love with a youthful talent. Here it is, Fred Astaire's Broadway star and Judy Garland's aspiring performer. And then in another Star is Born touch, this was actually made six years before Garland's a Star is Born. So Easter Parade is from 1948. Astaire and Garland's characters, they eventually become this onstage duo. They share a bunch of numbers together in the film. I know that uh, our producer, Sam, is partial to a couple of swells, but I'm going with When the Midnight Choo Choo Leaves for Alabama. They're both Irving Berlin songs, so I don't think either of us can be wrong. When the midnight choo-choo leaves for Alabama, 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 I'll be right there. Where will be? Where will be? I've got my fare. Show it to me. Show it to me. When I see that rusty-haired conductor man, what do you do? What do you do? I'll grab him by the collar and I'll holler, Alabama, Alabama. Wow. That's where you stop your train. That brings me back again. So I would have loved to have included a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers pick on this list. I'm a big fan of their movies, but the reality is he he's mostly singing to her in their films together, uh, and it's more about their dancing. This sequence, though, with Astaire and Garland, it's a bit more egalitarian. I don't mean to take anything away from, from Ginger's dancing. She's fantastic, but there's a nice balance in this Easter Parade number with Garland, who has the lead on vocals, pretty much. And then Astaire is uh, the more fluid, maybe technically proficient dancer. But both of them just come together to pull off and create this really complete performance. Uh, Easter Parade itself is is really fun. If Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born inspires you to revisit some classic Hollywood movies on this theme, I think I might send you to Garland's Easter Parade before her Star is Born, actually. Huh, really? I, I, yeah, I, I think it's a better film. Yeah, Sam has been making me feel bad about not seeing Easter Parade for a few years now. And now you're adding on, and it's working. Well, I know I need you to should see do it. it. I say it's good. I don't. I don't think I like it as much as you. But it's 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 the talent is is undeniable. It's yeah. it's like it's like you know it's 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 the same reason I picked the Gene Kelly Judy Garland number from 1942, just a few years earlier. And already you got a very different Garland in just yeah, in six that's years. True. You know, already gone through. You know, you can one, see that. Yeah, I mean, splitting up the marriage with Vince Minnelli, and you know, it was a very rocky time for her. She was kind of unreliable on the set, and just all kinds of health trouble and ugh, all of it. But um, you know, it, none of it, none of it is uh, found anywhere near that number. It's a great throwaway number. This song goes way back to near the beginning of Berlin's career, and uh, you know, Easter Parade is a songbook movie. It's it's taking. Berlin songs from all over the place and just sort of re- retrofitting them for the stars. Mm. And um, you know, have, you, have you ever seen the film Royal Wedding with Fred Astaire and Jane Powell? This is three I years later. Not. Okay, there's a song you should if you liked uh, Alabama. 
uh, you should probably check out that because there's a really good patter song uh, with, for uh, Stara and Jane Powell. And it's the funniest she ever got to be in a movie. And it's called uh, How Could You Believe Me When I Told You That I Loved You When You Know I've Been a Liar All My Life. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, and it's, 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 really, it's really got some good stuff. And it's Stanley Donnan directed it. And it's another one that's just it's basically a simple you know, uh, just two people on a vaudeville-type stage. This is a rehearsal. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, in yeah. your case, that's a rehearsal. Right. Side. Yeah, but it's it's all, you know, no scenery, essentially. Yeah. You know, and, it's anyway, just them. Check it out. It, yeah. That's a great number from Royal Wedding. It's in a similar vein to this. Hmm. My number two, there are far better musicals than Howard Hawks' Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Easter Parade might be one of them. But I would argue, based on my limited knowledge of musicals. I'm no Michael Phillips. There are Jane Russell, Marilyn Monroe moments that are as good here as any moments those better musicals may have to offer. I love that it can probably qualify technically as a duet because we do get both Monroe and Jane Russell singing the song together later in the number. But for the most part, they're separate. They're singing the same song in basically the same setting, but don't sing it together. And I think that's the magic of the duet, the different treatment the same song is given in terms of its staging and how it's treated then musically and vocally by the performers. The setup here is they're about to leave on this ship. They're going to France. They have a job there, but also Marilyn Monroe's Lorelai character is trying to marry up. She's found someone to be engaged to Gus, a rich man, his father does not trust Lorelai at all and doesn't allow him to sail on the ship over with them. And this is their goodbye, basically. And it starts with Jane Russell singing in the cabin. Little party has broken out in their cabin. The yachtsmen. The yachtsmen. yachtsmen, Aren't they like swimmers or something? We get that number with them. They're like Olympians or something. If I was a yachtsman and Jane Russell were on the boat, I'd probably hang near Jane Russell. Yes. And she's okay with that. There is scarcely a shot where she isn't surrounded by more than one man in this scene. The lyrics, if you just took the lyrics on their own, they could be wistful, but with Russell singing them, and Michael, I'm going to make an era-appropriate and actress-appropriate joke here, the song bounces. All visitors ashore, first call, all visitors ashore. Bye-bye, baby. Remember you're my baby when they give you Although I know that you care, won't you write and declare that though on the loose, you are still on the square? I'll be gloomy. Unlike Lorelai, she isn't leaving anyone behind, but if she was, you get the sense she'd be celebrating it. I'll be gone for a while. I know that I'll be smiling. Bye bye, baby, is her way of saying she's on the loose here. But then we get the switch. Lorelai grabs Gus, takes him into a separate room. The entire tempo and tenor of the song changes. I'll be in my room alone Every post meridian And I'll be with my diary And that book by Mr. Gideon In her heart, she might feel more like Dorothy than she's choosing to let on. She's giving a very convincing performance here to Gus that she'll be true. And while she's gone, she's going to be thinking about him only. But I do think it's Monroe doing what she does best. She's being sultry and she's being seductive in the scene. At the same time, she's being sweet and innocent. And he's buying 
Well, after a little bit of apprehension, he is buying every bit of it. And then it does end by going back to that upbeat style as she sends Gus on his way. I got to see this embark. movie. I got to see this movie again. I don't know how it's going to play to me as a, in, in this era we've been living in the last year since the Weinstein, Me Too, hmm. Kavanaugh, you name it. I mean, since it all happened the last year, because I, I just don't know how, how that whole act is going to play. I love, I love the talent, though. Yeah, and, I do, too. Yeah, I mean, this song you mentioned, it's sort of a typical Broadway, all ashore, who's going ashore number where people are sailing off to Europe, right? Yeah. And I mean, this is, you know, the, the Broadway stage is full of uh, Cole Porter or like several versions of that kind of song himself. And uh, if you really want the full-on duet with the two stars, of course, the opening credits are just unparalleled. It's by whatever, just whatever you... Th- from Little Rock? Yeah, I mean... It, so good. I mean, just the the, the blinding sort of technicolor... <laughs> yeah. Reds and and uh, Jack Cole's choreography and all that. None of that dates at all. I worry about some of the rest of it. I haven't again. I haven't seen it. And um, I, you know, this is going to be kind of the interesting thing in the next few years as we go ahead and look back at some of these songs and these movies we really like and maybe we haven't seen in a while. Are, how are they going to play now that? We're just paying a little more attention to uh, sexual politics and what these what the codes are really telling us about you know men and women and and, and the behavior. It's 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 an interesting time. I, I don't know. I hate to be a killjoy on this, but mm-hmm. but I've been really trying to examine exactly what's going to last for me in my affections and what what might just sort of think. Well, it was just one of those things. Yeah. You know? Well, I love the little rock song that opens the movie and it was my first choice ended up talking myself into this one we don't have time to unpack everything you brought up here i would especially need to rewatch gentlemen prefer blondes you, but need, you need more luggage than she's bringing onto that boat that's you know true. what i'm saying but I mean, in this scene you certainly can't argue that jane russell isn't an empowered woman yes she's making all of her own choices and doing everything she wants to do yeah absolutely absolutely and that brings us to our number one movie duet Michael Phillips, you have the honor. Oh, man, here it is. Okay, it's a great song. Now, people know this song because every time Bob Hope strolled onto a stage, you know, either on one of the USO tours in Vietnam with Joey Heatherton uh, or anybody else, they played a course, Thanks for the Memory. The old song it had been his theme since 1938. Well, you know what? That song is actually a lot better than... Um, a lot of people's impression of Bob Hope's career, especially in the later years, is it's a great song from a movie called The Big Broadcast of 1938. And it's a, it's a song by Hope and Shirley Ross, and they're on a, a yacht, you know, making a crossing. It's a couple that is realized that, you know, they cannot make this marriage work, and they're both having a drink at the bar, and they kind of just have this moment of mutual reminiscence. And the lyrics are really are really kind of surprisingly touching and sophisticated as they go through all the things they remember. It's a list song in that Tin Pan Alley category of songs. It is a list song of thanks for this, thanks for that, thank you for this, how lovely it was. And the moods, though, are much, are much more kind of surprising and bittersweet. And I just really, I really find this to be kind of a key moment in 30 cinema, even though the movie's not much overall. Um, I, I really love this song. It's, a, it's the best song that Noel Coward didn't write. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the memories of rainy afternoons, swingy Harlem tunes, motor trips and burning lips and burning toast and prunes. How lovely it was. Thanks for the memories of candlelight and wine. 
castles on the Rhine, the Parthenon, and moments on the Hudson River line. How lovely it was. Many's the time that we feasted. And many's the time that we fasted. Oh, well, it was swell while it lasted. We did have fun and no harm done. So thanks for the memory. It's another case of me not being very familiar with Bob Hope as a screen presence, at least, on the for feature films. And I would never expected, as you mentioned, Michael, the mood. This would be so sad for him to bring that element to it. And they both do. It is. It's, they play it's it really real. mournful. They yeah. play it for real. And, and it's not a song that changed your life. It's, it's, it's a small moment between two people parting. And, you know, there's something about that mood and that moment in a relationship that, that's kind of, you know, made for pathos. And it's also made for music. And I think... I think that song has a has a way of lingering in your memory and in your affections, and beyond just the kind of the the hardy h a r d y that is quality of the melody that made it a great theme song every time Hope strolled on with his putter, you know, doing another kind of second rate whatever in the stand up routine. I, I hope they say and many people would argue that it was sort of a quintessential twentieth century performer because he was the king of all media, you know, like he was a big radio star, big film star. A lot of that I don't really care about or I don't really, you know, love Hope like I love a lot of other people that he was a contemporary with. But but this song and the way they play together and the way that it kind of grinds the movie to a wonderful halt and actually makes you care. I, I love it. I really love this. All Josh? right. Number one, we've had a lot of classics, uh, some contemporary. I'm going for a very contemporary pick, but that kind of combines some classic stuff. I'm going with The Lovely Night. From La La Land. I'm oh, sorry. I'm okay. I'm always going to be the uncool guy in the corner, still loving La La Land. I love it. I know it goes up and down and, you know, it falls out of style, but I just can't help it. It's too delightful. Enjoying classic Hollywood musicals as much as I've come to do. I just can't get sniffy about a modern one that so capably continues that tradition. A Lovely Night has music by Justin Hurwitz. The choreography is by Mandy Moore. And it's a giddy update of the meet-cute moments you often see that often kicked off a lot of Astaire Rogers musicals. There are two people here, Emma Stone, Ryan Gosling, negotiating flirtation with hesitancy, uh, needling with compliments, and singing and dancing, and allowing that stuff to say everything that needs to be said. Some other girl and guy would love this swirling sky, but there's only you and I, and we've got no shy. This could never be, you're not the type for me, and there's not a spark inside. What a a waste of a lovely night. You say there's nothing here. Well, let's make something clear. I think I'll be the one to make that call. But you'll call. And though you looked so cute in your polyester suit, it's wool. You're right. I'd never fall for you at all. Yes, yes, I know Gasoline isn't the world's strongest singer. I seem to remember, Michael, you had some quibbles with his dancing as well, but I, I guess I'm just easily impressed or 
for me, it's just the prickly energy that uh, they have together that sells every minute of it for me in this moment. And and one criteria I guess I could have put on my list, um, I, I didn't, I thought of it a little bit later, but would be to ask what duet in my fantasy world I wish I could be a part of. And Frank and Bing, very tempting. It looks like a lot of fun, but I think a lovely night is it. So long live La La Land. I don't All think right. you could hang with that star wattage of Frank and Bing. Uh, that's why it's a fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, although I would see Josh Larson in high society if they remade it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, how often would you get the chance to see that? That's true. Yeah. Career goals. <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of La La Land. Yeah, I know you like the film. It's not my favorite number in it, but and I do think you can kind of see the thought balloon above Ryan Gosling's head and some of the numbers yeah, saying, yeah, here you know, we steps, go. okay, one, here two, three, go. four, <laughs> counting, counting the beats. But, you know, I don't get any of that from Emma Stone. I think she's... Really good, and it's not that they're they're meant to be, and they can never even really aspire to be triple threats like we used to get. Right, it's not that kind of thing. It's more like a Jacques Demy film. Where yes, you have yes, like yes, sort of yes. like earthbound talent, but 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 it's talent, and I think with Emma Stone, it's like real talent, mm-hmm. and with him, it's like you know pretty good under the circumstances. You know, the real the real co star for Emma Stone is everything else in the movie. I think Chazelle's. Direction is just costumes, the cinematography, gorgeous, gorgeous. All right, we're going to go to my number one, a movie that's decidedly more stripped down than La La Land. It is our second choice on this list from John Carney's great film. Once I'm going with probably the more cliche choice, but it's falling slowly. Marquetta Urglova, Glenn Hansard performing their first song together in the movie and revisiting this today. I didn't get a chance to watch the whole film, unfortunately, but. I was shocked at how early into the movie it that, comes. That comes before the rehearsals? The, the one uh, It's 12 minutes into yeah, the film. Yeah. Really? 12 minutes into the, It's only wow. an 82-minute movie or 88, but like it happens within the first 12 minutes after oh. they meet. He's a vacuum repair guy, and he's busking on the street and performing, and he meets Marquetta Urglova's character. She has just come over from the Czech Republic, mm-hmm, I believe, mm-hmm. and she's there in Ireland. We don't really know her story yet, but they've made this connection. And then she brings him to the music store that she likes to go to where she plays the piano. And she starts by playing him some Mendelssohn, which really impresses him. And then she asks him to play one of his songs. And I love that it's not about impressing her in this moment. He's not just going to perform for her. He picks a song that he's been working on and wants to perform it with her. He puts the notebook up and we actually watch him teach her how to play the song before she plays it. Now, she did know this song in advance, obviously. This mm. is a moment that's being acted for the film. But you believe the lesson there as it plays out. And you believe that when they do perform it just a minute later, that she would have it down as well as she does because of that lesson. And it starts with a little bit of a feeling out as he's kind of guiding her along. But then by the end of it, they are so in sync with each other that it's turned into a full-blown performance for him. He's putting himself into it the same way we see him do when he's busking on the street. forgotten too how john carney really doesn't cut much at all in this sequence 
there's about a four minute span where it's a single take hmm. and the camera is kind of documentary style just capturing it it's moving around them a little bit it's a little bit shaky but it's just there to capture the performance Carney knows the magic is in those voices and you really don't need any elaborate staging or cutting to frame it and he does speaking of framing does eventually cut to a close-up two shot where the song is really soaring and it locks their faces together and their voices together in that moment it was my number seven film of 2007 and i remember for that list i picked for each of my choices the awe moment the one where i just kind of got chills and it cemented that film was one of my favorite of the year and for me it was falling slowly where it just gave me those chills when i watch a great musical performance and it's the moment in the story where as i said then the new lovers in this type of movie they should be kissing here except that we get that through song rather than anything physical we did hear from adam Fromm, a listener earlier in our show in response to our poll question about great music moments and he had this high praise for falling slowly he says there's no scene in film history like the one in the music shop where hansard and marquette erglova first play falling slowly together as a musician i'm familiar with that breathtaking moment when you first connect with someone else through melody harmony and rhythm and you weave together something that's like falling in love or prayer or witchcraft or a combination of the three carney captures that feeling like lightning in a box conveyed through that magnificent piece of songcraft and the vulnerability and presence of his actors. The only time I've ever witnessed anything close to it on the big screen was the deathbed scene in Amadeus, as Mozart dictates the confutatis movement of his Requiem Mass to Salieri. For the record, I almost tried to spin that as a movie duet to make <laughs> this list. So Adam and I in lockstep, though he said it so much more eloquently than I did. Falling slowly, I love the song, and I think that's at least worth pointing out for me when I approach this list. Three of my choices here were driven largely by my appreciation for the song. Forget the performance or anything else about it, the context. I just love the song. Fare Thee Well is one of those, of course, and even A Kiss at the End of the Rainbow. Those are three tunes that I would just listen to on my iPhone, and in fact, I do fairly regularly. I went out and bought the soundtrack for once as soon as I walked out of the theater. It's been on my iPod or iPhone for 10 years and the same with Fairly Well. It's interesting because I mean, you look at, you look at, you know, everybody's picks here and, and in some cases you can absolutely point to uh, just past the performers to the song, you know, mm-hmm. because like, I don't think Josh, you'd probably say that, you know, when the midnight choo-choo leaves for Alabama is there for the song. <laughs> yeah, that's it's, more it, the performance, it's right? It's for the performance. And same yeah. with me with, uh, you know, Cassard's story. It's, it's really just the music mm-hmm. slays me. And, but in the case of, you know, and also, uh, thanks for the memory. I think it's just a really unbelievably sturdy song that has, you know, like honest sentiment that doesn't seem to date for me. But for me and my gal, you know, good song. It's there for Garland and Gene yes. Kelly. You know, can you yeah. feel the love tonight? Michael's favorite song <laughs> yes. ever. No, and, I've, and I've, so clearly we'll, we'll it's get just. To, we'll get to a good Disney uh, is that, song is that in a minute. Here. Mention? Yeah, it's, it's soon. Soon. We'll All do, right. Yes. Soon. We'll get there. Those are our top five movie duets. You can find that full list, all the movies we listed at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists right there at the top of the page. On the note of honorable mentions, Michael, you have a few? I've got four. Okay. Okay. And I've only got like 30, 35 minutes apiece. Okay. So we'll just whip through them. Okay. 
All right, Josh, hold on. I'll, let me give you a good Disney duet. Duet, duet, barely. Okay, Bella Note from Lady and the Tramp. I just love that song by Sonny Burke and Peggy Lee. And it's this is, of course, the famous scene where, where the dogs are having dinner at, their, at, the, at the Italian restaurant, and Tony and Joe come in with the instruments and the spaghetti and meatballs and sing this song. And that for just a few bars is an honest-to-God duet between the two Italian waiters doing some harmony. But the rest of it is really just kind of a solo line or a chorus. But, you know, it's a duet in every other way in our mind's eye because, of course, it's about the two dogs. And I just think that that song has... The stuff that uh, can you feel the love tonight? I don't. Uh, I don't. It doesn't evoke any particular imagery for me, other than you know the lobby. You know, <laughs> I, it makes me want to go to the lobby. Glad to hear you have a heart. I like your pick. I consider it as an honorable mention. Needs more warthog. Okay, needs more warthog. Good, good. That's one. Okay, and I love the film version of Cabaret, the Bob Fosse's nineteen seventy two film, one yes. of the best Broadway to. Film translations ever, um, and I, I think of the of the songs there. The, certainly, the strongest duet by a mile is "Money." So good, the money song with Joel Gray and uh, well, Liza Minnelli mainly, and Joel Gray, and that that's truly a, a, a wondrous interplay between two great performers doing great choreography, or just perfect, perfect dedication. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, you mentioned Astaire Rogers, Josh, earlier. I have to get at least one great song introduced by Fred Astaire, and in this case, also Ginger Rogers. Let's call the whole thing off yeah. from Shall We Dance. It's a roller skating sequence, and it's it's there really for mainly for the song because it's a wonderful song, and I love the Gershwin. So yeah, I li- I thought about that one. I don't like the skates in that scene. No, I, keep I know. Wanting them don't to love kick it. Skates off. Don't love it. You know, if you want a skating scene in a musical, uh, fast forward. Uh, it's always fair weather with Gene Kelly doing "I Like Myself," which is one of my favorite musical numbers in history. But that's not a duet. He's alone. All okay. Right. So, <laughs> and the other one, you do not know this song. I, I bet you don't know the song. Seems like a reasonable guess. Okay. I love to sing a by Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg. Okay. It was. <laughs> it's it's a duet for Al Jolson and Cab Calloway in a in Jolson's last starring vehicle, The Singing Kid. That don't bother. But this number is great, and I love Arlen and Harburg. Of course, they went on to write the score for The Wizard of Oz. Uh, they also wrote Lydia the Tattooed Lady for Groucho. Uh, you know, it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> song that you just got to, if you don't know what Al Jolson was like near the end of his career, and you've never seen Cab Calloway do it, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing, the two performance styles clashing together in this duet. But anyway, the song is great. I love to sing it. And it's over that a drama to everywhere it's called I love, love to sing. I was born a singing fool. La Giga. Oh, Major Bose is going to spot you. Josh. All right, Adam, I'm with you on the once pick. It's my honorable mention from Once Falling Slowly. I had to go with the obvious choice as well. I think it's just more, I like that song better than When Your Mind's Made Up. It's yeah. as simple as yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Both, good. both are great scenes uh, for the reasons we talked about. How about the title number of Cabin in the Sky, which we talked about, part of the Don't love the song. Don't marathon. love the song. Don't love the song. Ethel Waters and Eddie Anderson. I, I really like that one. I thought uh, that might be a possibility right, for my list. Right. Two listeners who surely know my love for the Muppets, Cortland Funk and Sean Leisher. They suggested Kermit and Fozzie Bear's Moving Right Along from the Muppet movie. Ah, Almost went there. Almost ah, went there. I I needed to wash away memories of the Happy Time Murders, so I did at least watch it. (laughs) Jason Knight, another listener on Facebook, threw out there. I don't know if he was serious or not, but 
I recently saw this on the big screen. I can't believe you didn't include it. Putting on the Ritz from Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Oh my god, it's an honorable mention I, for oh. me too. Yeah, I, I almost squeezed wow. it on there, but. Such fun. Yes. Ooper duper. I mean, you know, should have had it in. <laughs> yeah. Because of that listener on Twitter, it was an honorable mention for me. Two others that I think came up on Twitter that I would have completely forgotten about, and I love both of them. Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters in The Jerk. Tonight You Belong to Me. They have that great little falling in love number. And then the best part of it is they're sitting there and they're in close up. And out of nowhere, there's a trumpet solo. And Bernadette Peters picks up the trumpet and plays it, <laughs> which it just it's this brilliant bit of comedy there. And then how about Elaine May's underappreciated Ishtar? Oh, yeah. That opening number, the opening credit number, Dangerous Business. Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, their first, <laughs> their collaboration there on That's that right. tune is really good. So I couldn't justify putting this on my top five because it's such a bizarre little movie. Norman Jewison's 1973 Jesus Christ Superstar. But I love me some Jesus Christ Superstar, as listeners know. And Mm. The Last Supper, Carl Anderson and Ted Neely duking it out at The Last Supper is amazing. Also, West Side Story, Tonight would probably be the one I'd go with there. I love the person who suggested Spinal Tap all the way home when they sing that little ditty. I think this was a Twitter listener, too, who said The Jungle Book, one of my favorite animated oh, films yeah, of all yeah, time. Yeah, I, I want to be like you. I want to be like you because you, you got Louis Prima and Phil Harris. So good. Yeah, great. Finally, I'm just going to throw this in to give a little nod to a movie I just watched over the weekend. Needed a little distraction on Sunday night. Finally watched a 2018 film that I've been meaning to catch up with, a movie very much about music and performance, Hearts Beat Loud, the Nick Offerman film. Haven't mm-hmm. seen it. I really loved it. Oh, I really, really wow. loved it. And maybe this is an unconventional duet choice because we don't actually see them sing it together, but they make the song together, the title song, Hearts Beat Loud. They do it just as kind of a lark. It's a father whose daughter is about to go off to college at UCLA, and he kind of convinces her, let's jam they're both musicians. Let's play kind of one last time. They haven't done it in a while. And she had started a little song. And then he starts adding some other parts. And we get this kind of 10-minute montage where they create this song, Hearts Beat Loud, together. Mm. I love the movie. And I did go so far on Letterbox to say that it's basically 2018 Sing Street. Oh, and oh, okay. that's right. really high praise yeah, for how much I love Sing Street. Year, potentially. It's not, and I said this in the comments, it doesn't have the same imagination, doesn't have the same ambition that Sing Street has, but it's almost as delightful. So Hearts Beat Loud, it's out now on demand and DVD or however you watch movies these days. And that is our show. And it was a fun one. Thanks to you, Michael. Appreciate you bringing the class and the wisdom once it again. It was hard not to sing, really. <laughs> I, I, How I was talking to avoid I that? Because I love to sing. In my sing, case, uh, that's a good thing. But, <laughs> but feel free. Now, Michael, honestly, do you have a voice? Because um, we can't sing. Uh, no. no. I, Radio I, voices only for these two. I, I had voice enough to do Shapoopy in The Music Man in high school. So you nailed that audition. I, I did the beanpole version of Buddy Hackett, and uh, I, I killed it. Well, yeah. no, no, You've I think I, I think I killed others with it. <laughs> I think I don't know if I killed. Where can people find your stuff, Michael? Besides uh, reading it in the newspaper. Yeah, well, <laughs> novel idea. I, I'm busking over by the Prudential <laughs> Building where yes. the Tribune moved recently, but uh, yeah, ChicagoTribune.com/slash/movies.
always a treat to have you on. Thank you, Michael. It was fun, guys. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. You can also vote in the current film spotting poll. We've got a really simple one for you right for now. Once. Which new take on a 70s horror classic are you most looking forward to, Halloween or Suspiria? Also, if you haven't already, check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. That's available wherever you listen to podcasts. And they're digging into Michael Moore. I just listened right. to the initial episode on the way down here. Roger and me, and what did they pair it with? Fahrenheit 11.9, right? That's Is right. that it? Fahrenheit 11.9. So 9.11 and 11.9, they went a little bit unconventional yeah. there. Good stuff so far. Okay. If you want to order Film Spotting t-shirts or any other Film Spotting merch, we ask you to go to filmspotting.net slash shop. If you'd like to follow Adam and I on Facebook or Twitter, you can find Adam as Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in wide release this weekend. We said goodbye to Michael. We're going to bring him back for this. Venom is out with Tom Hardy, Michelle Williams, Riz Ahmed, and Woody Harrelson. Dang it. Really? Woody Harrelson's in this? Every franchise he's got a piece of. (sighs) I might have to go see it then. It's directed by Ruben Fleischer. I didn't know this until just now. The guy who made a movie I quite like, Zombieland. Yeah, Zombieland's great. Now, Michael, have you seen Venom? Everyone keeps asking me about it. Just random people. Tomorrow night. Have you seen Venom yet? Tomorrow night. What do you think of Venom? And I honestly don't even plan to see it. Oh, no, it doesn't surprise me. What about you? Well, we no, just have to, we have to be choosy. This isn't part of the MCU. I know this is an answer that's been given somewhere on the internet many times over, but I haven't explored. Do either of you two know? Is this officially part of the MCU uh, or not? It doesn't matter. The answer Adam, is, the answer is <laughs> wait for the, wait, the answer is wait for the Tribune review. All right. Okay. Just, okay. just make it simple. There Fair enough. Go. A Star is Born is also out. Recommended, maybe not with as much gushing as you've heard from oh, a lot I of critics. I guarantee you, but we have not recommended it highly enough. I'm sure we'll hear about it from a few people. It is out in wide release this weekend. Limited release here in Chicago. Bisbee 17 is opening. Now, I didn't know anything about this until it appeared here in my notes. Just magically, things appear here in my notes. But if there was ever a film that sounded like it was up my alley, I give you this description. It's the latest from the meta doc director, Robert Green, who did actress and Kate plays Christine. An old mining town on the Arizona-Mexico border reckons with its darkest day, the deportation of 1,200 immigrant miners exactly 100 years ago. Locals collaborate to stage recreations of their controversial past. I hear it's great. I haven't seen it. Really? No, yeah. It's very good. Very good. The Old Man and the Gun is out. The true story of nice guy career criminal Forrest Tucker. Robert Redford supposedly... His last? Mm-hmm. He's saying he's hanging it up after this. Sissy Spacek also in the film directed by David Lowry. Have you seen that one? Yeah, Michael? yeah, it's, it's good. Mm-hmm. Is it as good as his last film that a lot of us enjoyed? A ghost story. Uh, uh, different different intentions, uh, you know. No, I'm sorry. You have to rank them against each other. That's how this works. <laughs> what is this, some sort of stupid film spotting poll? <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to... Oh, it's oh, it's the final four. Pick I gotta pu- I gotta put uh, Passion and Joan of Arc up against the big broadcast of nineteen thirty eight. Uh, that, that's film spotting madness. You've right. got a few months till that. Uh, no, it, it's not quite up to the ghost ghost story level, but okay. it, uh, it's 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 going for cuddly. Okay. you know. Well, I'd more like than to see that. Uh, chilling. <laughs> no. Is there pie? There's no pie. Okay, well then I don't. No, care. there is. There is pie. They go to a diner and they eat pie. So that's just a thing for life. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Next week on the show, we might talk about Old Man and the Gun, if we can make it. We might finally talk about Jeremy Sonier's Hold the Dark on Netflix, if we can fit it in. What we are going to fit in for sure is Damien Chazelle's First Man. And then, right now, the top five, a Josh Larson special, Movie Astronauts. Why do you keep branding it? I don't know. It's the first idea to come to mind. (laughs) Richard Crenna in Marooned. Nobody remembers him. No. 
No. That's true. I don't That's know. your number one. I can't remember if he lives or dies. I don't you know. You want to come back for that one, Michael? <laughs> you did the Manimals. You can do the Astronauts. <laughs> Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogger. And without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that's Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We may have 700 episodes, but we always want to find new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.